0: Well my screen says the webinar is now broadcasting to all attendees so welcome to all attendees. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, signing up up for this. Uh, Thank you to Al who uh, behind the scenes is uh, helping me run the technology and doing the recording and so on. Uh, Hopefully you should be able to see uh, both me and uh, my powerpoint. Uh, brief introduction uh, to me uh, get the advertising out of the way. Um, so I'm uh, Peter S. Williams, not to be confused with uh, another frequent uh, attendee at uh, ELF, uh, Peter J. Williams, both of us are from England. Uh, he's the the guy from Tyndale House and uh, I'm the uh, philosopher-apologist from down south in Southampton. I'm also an assistant professor at uh, Gimler College in uh, Norway. Uh, You can see here on the screen hopefully my Twitter handle and my email and my website address and uh, at my website you'll find out lots more about me but also a lot of free resources in terms of uh, papers and videos, uh, video YouTube lists and so on. I hope uh, you've all also received a copy of the the outline uh, which also contains uh, a lot of uh, references that are of have uh, and some of which, uh, I'll try and highlight them later, will be of relevance to uh, some of the questions that I saw. A question list uh, was uh, emailed to me yesterday evening, um, some of the questions that we won't uh, be covering in the presentation that I've prepared, uh, but there are a few references on that uh, handout that are relevant to some of the questions about uh, the text of the old testament uh, who wrote the old testament the dating of some of those texts and so on so the way we're going to do this is i'm going to divide my material up into a series of uh, of uh, seven or eight chunks and i'll do a chunk of presentation and then i'll try and um, handle this technology so i can come out and look at the uh, the chat to see if there are any questions on uh, that section uh, for a few minutes and then dive back in. So I'll kind of break it up rather than just doing a, a three hour lecture. Uh, and uh, given that it's three hours as well, I'll uh, try and uh, stick uh, an official uh, toilet break in the middle somewhere as well. Um, but of course, you're free to do uh, what you like in the comfort of your own home. So let us get started with uh, having a look at. Uh, evidence for old testament history Uh, and i'm going from uh, abraham's uh, ur to daniel in babylon first section let us start with uh, looking at uh, what uh, the british atheist richard dawkins uh, one of the uh, most famous members of the so-called new atheist movement Uh, has to say about Old Testament history uh, especially in his uh, recent book Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide uh, a book aimed at a young adult uh, audience so he makes uh, a number of assertions and I do mean just assertions about Old Testament history in Outgrowing God including these he says uh, Biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. He asserts that uh, this or that Old Testament story makes what he calls an extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary evidence. He asserts that there's an absence of uh, extra-biblical, outside-of-the-Bible evidence for the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories that he talks about. And finally, he asserts the existence of extra-biblical evidence that actually counts against the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. Well, that's a whole lot of asserting to do, first of all, for a book uh, that's supposed to be encouraging young people to ask for evidence. For what they believe this is the sort of major point of his opening chapter is to sort of say that you know truth matters and competing religious claims can't all be true and you shouldn't just believe things because you were brought up to believe it and uh, you ought to go and ask what's the evidence uh, and then unfortunately in uh, the rest of the book uh, Richard Dawkins does a lot of asserting things without giving anybody any evidence uh, even to the extent that there are no footnotes and no bibliography uh, in the book for people to pursue so let's go through uh, these assertions briefly uh, starting with uh, biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history well of course some don't um, but some certainly do um, Dawkins' assertion is simply a false generalisation. Uh, we have the assertion that this or that Old Testament story makes an extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary evidence, a sort of um, slogan that goes back uh, to, uh, famously, Carl Sagan uh, used it uh, in the 70s um, in his uh, TV series Cosmos. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, what do you mean by extraordinary uh, in both of those clauses is uh, doesn't really uh, help us uh, very much. It, and indeed, this goes back to the Enlightenment Scottish philosopher David Hume and his uh, notorious arguments against the believability of miracles. Uh, this is a sort of uh, third-hand, reheated, fallacious Humeanism. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, the assertion that an absence of extra biblical evidence uh uh for the historical truth of certain old testament stories uh, well uh, again this is uh, sort of cribbing this uh, argument about uh humanism here now that's my powerpoint slightly wrong there um this is a a nice slide from tim um, mcgrew who um says this really boils down to uh, often an argument that goes something like this Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence uh, and the claim that a miracle occurred is extraordinary Uh, therefore any evidence supporting it ought to be extraordinary as well. Um, I'm not sure what I mean by extraordinary but whatever you come up with it's not going to work therefore uh, I don't have to believe in your miracle claim basically it's just pointing out that it, without actually defining what extraordinary is it's just being used as a slogan and as soon as you actually carefully define what uh, extraordinary claims or extraordinary evidence would have to be um, either you are get setting out a series of claims which could potentially be met and you have to, have to actually look at the evidence and see whether or not it meets uh, the criteria or you're just in advance of looking at the evidence, uh, sort of deliberately setting the bar uh, to be leapt over so so high that no potential uh, amount of uh, empirical evidence could ever convince you that a miracle has, has happened. You're taking sort of a priori approach, um, which although it sounds like you're saying, you know, show me the evidence it's all about we need evidence uh, actually you're 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 kicking evidence out of the out of the consideration uh, out of the playing field anyway as William Lane Craig uh, American Christian philosopher notes that the fallaciousness of Hume's reasoning which this is a sort of bastardized version of has been recognized by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today and that's not just the majority of christian philosophers that's uh, so the majority of philosophers um so for example i've got a cover up here of john ehrman who's an agnostic philosopher he wrote a book called hume's abject failure the argument against miracles um and if you want to pursue this uh more you could either uh get uh ehrman's book or uh there's a chapter in my recent book getting at jesus uh, which looks at what the New Atheist movement says about Jesus. There's a chapter in there dealing at length with the issue of uh, miracles and the, the New Atheists' uh, use of Hume uh, to defend their failure to really engage seriously with evidence for miracles. So, uh, this absence of extra biblical evidence, uh, this is where we should come on to this. Uh, this is an argument from silence. Uh, and philosophers are very wary of arguments from silence uh, as arguments trying to show that anything is the case Um, we have a very limited access to the past through the known chain of its effects a couple of examples we've got only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history that were written uh, by a chap called Livy uh, and they survive in a couple of manuscripts Um, 20 manuscripts Uh, the oldest of those from the 4th century even though he's writing in uh, the BC AD sort of divide Uh, again we've got four and a half books out of 14 books of Roman history written by Tacitus and those surviving two manuscripts from the 9th and 11th centuries and yet this is the kind of material that classical historians are well used to using and treating critically in order to do and write, you know, books on Roman history, right? So, arguments from silence tend to make a they uh, make an undisciplined shift from this uh, absence of evidence for or against uh, a claim to a conclusion about the truth or falsity of that claim. Uh, uh, that shift uh, is suspicious. Um, As atheist Victor Stenger himself and uh, one of the New Atheist writers warned, an absence of evidence should only be treated as uh, evidence of absence, that is evidence of the falsity of a claim, when the evidence should be there and it's not, as he says. If the evidence should be there and we don't find it, then that means something. Uh, but otherwise, uh, arguments from an absence of evidence don't really show anything. Um, I like quoting from atheists when I can agree with them. And I think this is what's going on uh, in Dawkins' criticism of the Old Testament. For a comparison, think for a moment about something like the Book of Mormon. Uh, When we compare the Book of Mormon to archaeology in uh, the States, we find a pervasive lack of expected evidence. So Dr David Johnson, who's a professor of anthropology at Brigham Young University, uh, states that there is no archaeological proof of the Book of Mormon. There's absolutely no archaeological evidence that you can tie directly to events that are meant to have taken place in the Book of Mormon. For example, in Mormon 6, uh, there's a claim that hundreds of thousands of people were killed on or near the hill Kimora during uh, a battle. And we would expect to find some artifacts from such a large battle such a long time ago. Um, for a comparison, um, thousands of bullets have been found at the site of far smaller uh, American Civil War Battle uh, of Gettysburg. Um, but this battle, although uh, longer, meant to be longer ago, is of course meant to be much larger. Uh, but nothing has been found at Hill Kimorra that ties to this uh, supposed slaughter. Uh, and I think this is the sort of absence of evidence that constitutes evidence of absence and makes one wonder, Uh, not the kind that we get uh, with uh, the Old Testament. Finally, Dawkins asserts that there is the existence of extra-biblical evidence against the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. Um, This, unfortunately, is simply a matter of ignorance on his part, uh, repeatedly. History uh, the study or the record of past events, uh, especially events of a, a particular period or country or subject. Uh, philosopher Daniel Little uh, notes that ultimately the historian's task is to shed light on the, the what, the why and the how of the past based on inferences from the evidence of the present. So I say, we access the past through its remaining evidential traces that have been discovered in the present. And of course there may be remaining evidential traces of the past that haven't yet been discovered or that are very unlikely ever to be discovered because people are you know living on top of them and don't want their houses dug up and so on. Archaeology as a sort of sub-branch of of history, a scientific discipline that contributes to history if you like, is the systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour, so digging up the things that people made. Professor John Monson notes that archaeological evidence is scattered uh, random and incomplete just like those books of tacitus and uh, so on that we were talking about uh, he says just as the bible's record is uh, selective ancient and theologically orientated so the the Bible's written for particular purposes with its own uh, particular uh, angle on the events of the day and so on And we have a very um, incomplete and kind of random sampling of what we've discovered of what happens to have survived from the past. And then we're trying to relate those things together in archaeology and and history. Uh, Any attempt to relate these two sets of information is fraught with with challenges. This is uh, a difficult field. And of course archaeologists bring different worldviews to their interpretation of data. It's not as simple as just digging up something, you have to interpret it, uh, what it means, how it relates to the Biblical text, Um, so what is the Biblical text actually claiming, Uh, and so on. All these sort of hermeneutical interpretative questions come into play on, on both sides here. It's good to know about um, the distinction in the field between so called minimalism and maximalism in archaeology. As uh, Michael Heiser here notes, for those unfamiliar with this minimalist maximalist debate over biblical archaeology, the former, uh, the minimalists, basically believe the Old Testament has little or no historical value. This is where Richard Dawkins plants uh, his flag, if you like. Uh, They think it was entirely written. Uh, during or after the Babylonian exile period that's when they think the Old Testament was written Uh, so they're very skeptical uh, about uh, stories about the patriarchal events or the Exodus for example. Maximalists, on the other hand uh, disagree on what I'd call a continuum of optimism about the biblical text as a historical source and again this is not just applying to sort of Christians versus non-Christians uh, or uh, Jews uh, versus uh, non-Jews uh, or Atheist scholars there are of course Atheists and Agnostics and, and Jews and Christians and peoples of other worldviews and religions who are historians and archaeologists who are involved in this debate so uh, Dr Israel Finkelstein is a Jewish archaeologist and he's a minimalist uh, he says the world in which the Bible was created Uh, was not a mythic realm of great cities and saintly heroes but a tiny down-to-earth kingdom. The historical saga contained in the Bible from Abraham's encounter with God and his journey uh, to Canaan uh, to Moses' deliverance of the children of Israel to the rise and fall of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah was not a miraculous revelation but a brilliant product of the human imagination. It's just a product of imagination. They're fairy tales, basically, he's saying. Whereas, on the other hand, sure, there are historians who take the Bible seriously. Uh, Dr Walter Kaiser Jr. from his History of Israel uh, says that the evidence for the truthfulness and historicity of the Bible continues to mount up as never before. Just when scepticism seems to be making the most noise we're being flooded with an overwhelming amount of real hard evidence that demands a verdict opposite to what minimalists are clamouring for. Never has any previous generation seen the amount and significance of evidence that are now available to us today. And we'll be seeing a sample of this evidence uh, together today. Likewise, uh, Christian philosopher Paul Copan here uh, notes that the once-doubted historical claims of the Old Testament, uh, whether that's about the cost of slaves in the Ancient Near East, or camels appearing on livestock lists during the time of Abraham, uh, the kingship of David, the mines of Solomon, the metallurgy of the Philistines, the existence of the Hittites, uh, these claims turn out to be anchored in Ancient Near East history. Uh, and we know that from extra-biblical evidence. Uh, and just a slide that I, I couldn't exactly decide where to, to slip this in, but it's a point that I think bears mentioning. Something that had always struck me about the, the Bible and the Old Testament, um, as I uh, read it even as a child, uh, was that the, the Old Testament repeatedly passes what a historian would call the, the criterion of embarrassment. Uh, that is, it's brutally honest about the failings of its lead protagonists, uh, and uh, people don't tend to tell stories that put themselves or their own people in a in a bad light. Um, if this book is just being written up in the Babylonian exile in order to uh, give the Jewish people a sense of community and uh, community bonding and to make themselves feel good, and so on, then. Why would you um, make up such an embarrassing history in, such a, se- in a sense, where you know Moses uh, committed murder, or at least manslaughter, uh, and tried to avoid God's calling to confront uh, Pharaoh? Uh, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for her husband to be in the front line of a battle so he'd get killed. And the nation of Israel repeatedly fails to live up to the covenant uh, with God, and so on. So as we go through in the following sections, uh, the kind of overarching argument that I'll be making is summarised nicely by uh, Christian philosopher Lydia McGrew here, gives this nice sort of uh, analogy. She says, if you sample a loaf of bread on both ends and at several points in the middle and find it find it good it would be uh, curvailing. it would be being far too skeptical if you then said that well perhaps the parts that you haven't tasted yet happen to be the moldy ones right if we keep sampling claims that the old testament histories make and we can show that they're historically plausible uh, the more that we do that, the more it would be being too sceptical to say, well, perhaps it's just the bits that we haven't been able to check that are unreliable. Uh, So repeated confirmations of particular facts tend to confirm not only those particular facts, but the sources that report those facts. That's the sort of overall uh, argument. Um, And an interesting question about how strong in a in a postmodern co- culture, is uh, an apologetic argument from from history. Um, well, I think for, at least for those who are interested in the question, and particularly for those who, if people raise objections about the historicity of the Old Testament, as as Richard Dawkins is, for example, and he's his books and thinking influences many many people and many young people. He's aiming at with that book Outgrowing God if people have objections or they're asking questions about history then that's the the playing field that they're playing on and those are the rules that they have to to play by and we may need indeed to, to first of all begin to educate people about you know what is history and how does it work and what are the kind of rules that scholars use to analyze the past and to work out what happened. I'm talking only about things like the the criterion of embarrassment or we've been talking about looking for, you know, we have a text and can we check it against evidence from another source, having multiple sources pointing at the same thing and so on. Um, uh, And we can we can get down that line. So I, I think at the very least people who have objections to the Bible based on this territory um, that's the territory they're playing on and, and then we we can answer them um, uh, how do the creation accounts sit within uh, the Old Testament history someone uh, is asking there uh, you see I started with, with Abraham rather than the, the creation accounts and so on but I will uh, just point you to uh, the the outline has suggested resources. There are a couple of things I wanted to highlight to you um, that were on that outline that related to I think some of the questions that are coming up here and some that I had in advance. Um, there's a, a website and also a book called Dating the Old Testament, which relates to some of the questions about dating. The author goes through each of the books of the Bible and, and reviews the evidence about dating when it was was written. Um, my YouTube playlists, there's a few of them listed there under, under the watch category. And there's a YouTube playlist on the book of Genesis, uh, which might have some uh, useful things. And also one on on Exodus and so on. Um, someone I know in the pre-questions I had submitted were asking about who wrote the book of Genesis. And there's a, a short article by uh, Tremper Longman III called Who Wrote the Book of Genesis? Um published at the Zondervan Academic Blog, uh, which might be useful to go to to, to start thinking about that. Uh, there was a couple of uh, questions about dating the book of Daniel as well. And um, on the list there, there's Josh McDowell's book, Daniel in the Critic's Den. Um, old now, in 1979 it was published, but but still good. And a more recent publication on the book of Daniel is John Lennox's book Against the Flow, uh, the inspiration of Daniel in an age of relativism, and uh, that book dating the Old Testament is by Craig Craig Davis. So I thought those were particular things I'd highlight on the handout uh, that related to questions people were asking um, that I'm not explicitly covering in uh, the talk here. Uh, let's see other things coming in. Okay. Uh, Yes, I'm asking about genres. Of course, there's lots of genres of books in the Old Testament from uh, poetry, love poetry, psalms, song of songs, uh, wisdom, literature and proverbs, ecclesiastes and so on. Um, uh, Histories. I'm talking in this talk about histories, things like that you would find in in Kings or that some of the prophets uh, talk about the events of their uh, era Um, or um, when it's talking in Genesis about uh, the patriarchs and Abraham and so on Um, the exodus these are sort of historical literature Um, and of course the genre of things like some of the material uh, in uh, the earlier chapters of Genesis is quite controversial even among Christian scholars as to what kind of literature you should treat it out, whether it is straight to be read as sort of straightforward historical or as, um, I forget which, uh, I think it's, um, I forget which scholar it is, who calls them sort of proto-history. He doesn't like the word myth because in popular thinking to talk about myth is to talk about sort of false stories. Uh, whereas scholars don't mean that by by the term myth, and we'll talk about the mythology of different different cultures around at the time, the creation myths and so on. Uh, I'd be entirely sort of comfortable saying the Bible has its creation myth; it just happens to be true creation myth. But that doesn't prejudge questions about you know is it meant to be read in a sort of woodenly literalistic way, uh, woodenly historical way, are there elements of, um, at at least elements of um, metaphorical language in there or figurative accounts. Um, William Lane Craig notes that scholars tend to think that um, creation myths are are not sort of meant to be read as sort of crude proto-scientific accounts of things, but as figurative accounts that are communicating Mainly things on a sort of world view uh, level. Um, this is uh, something I've written about in the uh, the Zondervan Dictionary of Science of Christianity and Science. I've got an article there on mythology and the creation myths of, of the Bible, and that's a book that also has various different articles from Christians with differing views on those kind of accounts. Um, and you can find some of the, also some of those sort of Zondervan three views or five views on the early accounts in Genesis or f- five views on the historical Adam and those kind of books are a good places to sort of educate yourself on, on the discussion amongst Bible-believing Christian scholars as to how to understand some of these more difficult uh, to interpret passages. Okay... Uh, so I think I've pointed to resources that, that cover these questions. If I've not covered them myself, and I think uh, in the needs of time, we need to keep the sort of keep the pace up. So I'm going to go back to uh, sharing my PowerPoint. Uh, there it is. Hopefully that will now come up. There we go. Good. Uh, And I'm going to start with, uh, as promised, uh, Abraham. uh, Abraham in Ur. So just to situate ourselves in the biblical geography, uh, Abraham of the Chaldees, the call of Abraham here uh, uh, circled on on the map in, in that area that later becomes the sort of Babylonian kingdom. Uh, and uh, you, you have this on your your uh, handout as well this sort of area of the biblical geography and some of the, the arrows sort of showing the, the movements of, of significant peoples and people's groups over the course of, of the biblical history so that's kind of where we are geographically with Abraham and also on the handout is this which we'll keep coming back to again a uh, uh, timeline of the Old Testament story put against some of the people and events of of, uh, secular history, if you like, uh, with the events of uh, biblical uh, history. And we're starting here uh, with Abraham uh, around 1900 BC, so uh, nearly 4000 years ago, uh, and the period of the the Patriarchs. Uh, If you ever get a chance to go to the British Museum in London, uh, I encourage you to do so and do so in the company of a, a book uh, that will guide you round the uh, biblical uh, material that's there or take a guided tour there are uh, people that you can get to um, give you a guided tour from a Christian organisation will give you a, a sort of guided tour of the British Museum uh, pointing out that particularly the bits uh, that reference the Bible in there and this uh Uh, the so-called the Ram in the thicket from about 2600 BC. This uh, comes from the Royal Cemetery in Ur, uh, the city where uh, Abraham came from. Um, Now, uh, this is actually uh, a statuette of a, a marktor, a species of wild goat. Uh, this is not actually a statue of the ram in the thicket in the story of Abraham. As I say, this dates from before the time of Abraham, but this just gives you a, a, a wonderful example of the kind of artistry, uh, artistry of the the culture uh, that Abraham came from. And when you're standing in front of of something like this, and it, it's it's about sort of this this size uh, in real life um the years just kind of peel away and you're like you know someone made this and sculpted it and painted it and the colors and the artistry uh, and this is the civilization that abraham came from at, at Ur. it was although a culture that could produce great beauty also a, a culture unfortunately that uh, dealt in human sacrifice so this is Jean Jones here an article she she wrote about this noting that in Abraham's birthplace of Ur religious rituals included human sacrifice one of the most uh, startling excavations from Ur is the so-called Royal Cemetery where that uh, statue was found you know buried in the Royal Cemetery with its pits containing human sacrifices uh, most of them adult human sacrifices although not all. Uh, Abraham uh, moved to from Erd-Haran not far from other sites where human sacrifices have been uncovered from the same era. And Although there were also infant sacrifices in the regions these are mostly adult sacrifices and uh, Jones notes that this is significant because at the time that god tested abraham by asking him to sacrifice uh, isaac uh isaac was not uh, a child um, as shown for example in the biblical text of the fact that uh, isaac carries carries the wood up there up the hill uh for uh, abraham um suggests that he wasn't uh, a little one uh, as it were uh so actually in the cultural context that abraham came from it was a culture where the the religious uh, idea of of sacrificing people to the gods would have been just sort of taken for granted and the the strange and shocking uh, thing in cultural context about that story of of god uh, saying you know take isaac and take him up up the mountain and t- take him up to be off, t- as a thing to be taken up as a thing to go up uh, literally, um, is that God actually stops human sacrifice from taking place and then provides the, the substitute and the animal sacrifices and so on. Um, so that's a sort of interesting cultural background to the the story of, of Abraham and, and why the characters in that story react in the way that they do, in a way that um, Richard Dawkins, as he discusses this story in his Outgrowing God book, uh, finds uh, very surprising. Uh, the so called Nuzi tablets, uh, excavated from the Tigris uh, River, 20,000 baked clay uh, cuneiform, the writing that you can you press into the sort of wet mud with a stick, uh, is how this writing is done, and then it, then it dries, uh, where the city of Nuzi once stood. And these tablets uh, explain various cultural practices that can be gleaned from them. Um, that are very similar to those seen in events of the Biblical patriarchal period, sort of 2000 to 1500 BC. Uh, And these cultural practices have to do with all sorts of things, including marriage, the adoption of of heirs, with surrogate mothers, with inheritance. Uh, Inheritance is a big theme in the patriarchal period and so on. We see that in the surrounding culture, that the Bible is accurately reflecting the sort of cultural practices uh, of uh, the culture around in the ancient Near East at, at the time. It's something that scholars called uh, cultural verisimilitude, verisimilitude, or getting the culture right. <laughs> okay, getting the culture right. So historian Paul Mayer observes that details in the biblical account regarding Abraham, such as the treaties that he made with neighbouring ru- rulers, even the price of slaves, Mesh well with what's known elsewhere in the history of the ancient Near East. Uh, Selman here writes that since the patriarchal customs can be compared with, without difficulty, with a wide range of material from the ancient Near East, from the independent viewpoint of the historian, he says the social parallels make the historical existence of the patriarchs more likely. That is, the the the. the the, t- the sources are getting the, the the culture right, and therefore it's more likely that those sources are sources from the culture, rather than say that the story was I don't know made up during the time of the Babylonian exile, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Uh, it would be more surprising that it would get these cultural details correct, especially in an age that didn't have the discipline of archaeology and uh, so on, right? And you can't just go and uh, do your historical research on Wikipedia or whatever at the time. So uh, Gordon Wenham, he uh, asked this uh, question. Why is there no uh, no Baal, the god Baal? uh, Why is there no mention uh, of Jerusalem uh, in these texts? He argues that the complete absence of Baal from the patriarchal tradition points to its antiquity. In the second half of the 2nd millennium BC, Baal took over from El as the leading god in the West Semitic pantheon of gods, uh, yet he is never mentioned in Genesis. This is intelligible if the patriarchal tradition orig- originated before about 1500 BC, but not if it comes from later times. And To the right of that quote is a a photo that I took of a uh, a relief uh, that's meant to show the god uh, Baal uh, from the time, and you can see he's holding uh, in his hand, he's holding a sort of axe. Uh, Baal is like um, the West Semitic sort of equivalent of the Norse god Thor. He's a a thunder god, a storm god, right? So it's uh, like a sort of middle... Middle Eastern Thor, if you like. Uh, Wenham also points out that since Jerusalem certainly existed in patriarchal times, the failure of the, those narratives to mention Jerusalem as a centre of worship is most easily explained if those traditions not only originated but were committed to writing, he says, before Jerusalem became the principal cultic centre, which was around the beginning of the first millennium. BC. So he thinks that both of these things point to an early origination and writing of these patriarchal narratives because you would have expected narratives that were written later to have mentioned these, these things and people not to have you know known, for example, when Baal took over from L because you, you couldn't sort of refer to um, the historical research we now have. Uh, to to show you that if you're writing, if you're a Jew writing the Bible during the Babylonian exile, it doesn't just doesn't work. So back Dawkins again. He uh, asserts that Abraham's camels are an anachronism. They're out of place in the in the in the biblical story because uh, the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. Uh, This is simply a matter of ignorance on Dawkins' part, he's just wrong about this. Uh, So Kenneth Kitchen, who's a well-respected Egyptologist, uh, notes uh, that it's often asserted that the mention of camels and their use is an anachronism in Genesis, but this charge is simply not true. He says there's both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and use of this animal in the early second millennium B.C. and even earlier. Kitchen lists uh, a bunch of uh, evidence, uh, including uh, figurines of camels with, with signs of uh, use, uh, uh, seals d- depicting um, people or deities, perhaps riding camels, but certainly the idea of riding camels existed from the 18th century BC, references to camels in Sumerian texts and so on. He says there are other traces of camels much earlier in Egypt and Arabia in the third millennium. The camel was for long a marginal beast in most of the historic ancient Near East, including Egypt, but it was not wholly unknown or anachronistic either before or during uh, the 2000 uh bc sort of era uh in his comprehensive study of the domestication of camels and this was a talk at a previous elf that i actually attended uh, professor k martin hyde uh, and you can find his article on this for free online he uh, has an extensive review of the evidence and uh, professor hyde concludes that the the evidence points to the fact that the bacterian camel you know there are two different kinds of camel uh, that's interesting. Something uh, is happening to my little Zoom picture there. Zoom account 2.5 is. Uh, can you check me that I am still uh, talking here? Uh, everything looks good? Okay. Good day. Uh, just uh, something weird happening to the little floating picture on my screen. Uh, so I hope this is all going ahead. Uh, yeah, so Hyde uh, says that the, the bacterian camel, at least, uh, was domesticated before the, the dromedary camel and were put to use by the middle of the third millennium or earlier. And the gradual spread of the bacterian uh, camel uh, seems to have reached the Mesopotamian civilization sporadically at least by the middle of the third millennium and more frequently at the end of the third beginning of the second millennium And that's the area that we're, we're interested in with Abraham uh, so Hyde says the archaeological and inscriptional evidence allows at least the domesticated Bactrian camel to have existed in Abraham's time so as I say um, Dawkins uh, complaint here is simply a matter of of ignorance on his part yeah someone asking about um sort of non-christian views of scripture and sort of perception of scripture and i think that a lot of people sort of expect scripture more along the lines that the sort of muslim model of of scriptural revelation would be Um, that it is a sort of text directly from the mouth of god if you were uh, revealed to someone who's sort of taking divine dictation writing it down uh, and and that's it and, and what you have in the revelation is sort of God telling you things and of course that's the, the model of, of revelation that, that Muslims have but it's not the model that Jews and Christians have uh, we have a much more complex model of revelation uh, where uh, the text is both uh, the uh, the written word of the of the people who, who write it uh, and collect it, and um, the scribes and so on, and the word of God. Um, and sometimes God is quoted directly in there, um, but uh, sometimes the the devil is quoted directly in there, um, uh, and you have to look when you're interpreting the scriptures at the, at the context both at the literary context uh, you know the literary genre and the literary context of what's going on the cultural context helps you to understand that and so on and uh, to not uh, read it as if it's all the same kind of literature as if it's all in the same voice um, you know y- you can um, uh, you can find statements in the scripture, for example, that are false. Of course, you can, because the scripture quotes the devil saying things, or or quotes some of you know Job's comforters say things to Job, and yet at the end of the book, when God turns up, uh, and this is you know clearly the viewpoint that we're we're meant to take, God you know says, who are these people who are sort of saying things without knowledge? Um, And if you didn't take that into account, you might start building your theology on what Job's comforters say when actually you read the whole book in context and you see a major point of the book is to criticise some of those theologies of suffering that are put into the the mouths of Job's uh, so-called comforters. uh, And it's critiquing uh, other prevalent uh, theologies of of the day and so on. Uh, So yeah, we we have uh, a more complicated... Uh, uh, route to uh, understanding what the, the scripture says because of that complexity um, but uh, that certainly needs taking into account and you might I guess say that sort of uh, Muhammad produced uh, what people might sort of naively uh, want a revelation to be a more sort of straightforward concept of revelation Uh, Whereas we're grappling with the revelation that God has decided is the the best type to actually give us. (laughs) yeah. Good. Okay. Aha. So uh, Beth Hedges uh, notes. So uh, Wenham is arguing from silence about Baal and Jerusalem. Indeed he is. Yes. And this is where... Um, this thing that I mentioned earlier, the quote from Victor Stenger about um, an expect an, an expected absence of evidence doesn't really show anything, but an, an unexpected evidence uh, absence of evidence. Uh, so you have to be very careful with arguments from silence, but you can make them where you would expect there to be an evidence of something, and then you find it missing, because then that seems uh you have to then explain well why is that missing. Um so uh, we would say if the Bible were written during the Babylonian period as the minimalists say, one would expect uh them to know about Baal and to and to talk about Baal but not to know about the cross about the precise crossover period historically. Or you would expect them to know about Jerusalem as an age-old centre of worship and so on. Uh, and again, not to know exactly about the historical boundary of that. Whereas the fact that those things are, are not mentioned in those ways in the patriarchal texts uh, can be taken as a, a pointer, a sign, maybe not a definitive one, but a pointer to thinking uh, that it's uh, a plausible explanation of that is that the, these texts were uh, written earlier uh, than the babylonian uh, uh, era uh, exile era yeah so exactly so you have to be careful with arguments from silence but i think gordon is 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 being appropriately careful there in what he argues um question about translation um certainly and uh, um of course we read the bible in translation and more modern translations are, are more reliable than older translations partly because we discover more manuscripts and we discover more about the, uh, not just biblical manuscripts, but manuscripts in general that use that language and find out more about how the language is used and what it means. And We find out more about the cultural background as well to things. So that all helps us to understand what the text is is meaning uh, and that's why we, you know, preachers, for example, don't j- sh- or shouldn't just buy a Bible commentary o- on a book and then use that forever after. Uh, we should try and keep up to date uh, every now and again with uh, our Bible translations and our commentaries and our attempts to to understand the text. It's an ongoing thing as we try and progressively get a more and more a nuanced understanding and a clearer understanding of of what is being said uh, so um, couldn't uh, someone's asking about couldn't the argument from silence be used to justify ancient myths from other cultures? Um, In theory, um, I don't see any reason why not, but one would have to actually look at at what the particular argument was, so you need a specific argument uh, talking in in those terms that that Wenham was about, you know, we know from um, independent sources, these things we know, uh, what people at certain time periods would have known and not known, the way they would have thought, and then comparing that with a particular text and mount a appropriately nuanced argument from from silence. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let us uh, power on and go back to screen sharing uh, with the PowerPoint and uh, our third little section here uh, about the exodus and the promised land uh, moving up to the time of the exodus which um, you know, there's two uh, main camps within uh, biblical scholars as to dating the exodus uh, either in the 15th or the 13th century and I'm not particularly going to go into that because it takes me a little beyond my expertise as uh, an amateur historian uh, trained in philosophy rather than uh, than uh, this subject. I'm just a well-read amateur, uh, but uh, the era of Moses, um, if we take sort of 13th century exodus, let's put Moses around about 1260 um, BC, uh, we're looking. Uh, and again, here are a few books. Um, particularly good on this area are, are, are these books. Uh, James Hoffmeyer, who's an Egyptologist, has written quite a few. Uh, books about uh, the exodus he supports a 13th century exodus as does uh, Colin Humphreys uh, and his book on the miracles uh, of the exodus. Some very interesting research in in all of those and of course geographically here we are uh, moving down now to uh, Egypt. Uh, Dawkins mounts this sort of argument from silence Uh, He says, you would think that such a big event as the enslavement of an entire nation and its mass migration generations later would have left traces in the archaeological record and in the written histories of Egypt. Unfortunately, there is no evidence of either kind. Uh, No evidence of anything like a Jewish captivity in Egypt. It probably never happened, although the legend is burned deep into Jewish culture that would raise a big question of why a culture would make up a legend about it its culture coming from roots as a bunch of slaves uh, in another culture no other culture made up uh, such a, a a story so uh. Thomas Davis is an archaeologist, unlike Dawkins, uh, and he disagrees with Dawkins uh, on this. He says no direct evidence has yet been uncovered to ground the, the exodus in historical physical space, but this absence of evidence is often interpreted as a direct challenge to the historicity of the biblical account. However, he says, the formation processes that affect archaeological data in remote desert environments such as the Sinai and the nature of the archaeological signature of a migratory group force a reassessment of this negative conclusion. He says finding direct evidence of a single-use campsite of a nomadic people group that can be dated in isolation in the Sinai is a totally unrealistic Expectation and therefore, it is not a surprising absence of evidence from which one can mount uh, an argument. Kenneth Kitchen uh, reports that a tiny fraction of reports from the East Nile Delta occur in papyri recovered from the desert near Memphis. Otherwise, the entirety of Egypt's administrative records of all periods in the delta are lost. We just don't have Egyptian records. And monumental texts are also almost nil. And anyway, as pharaohs never monumentalized defeats on temple walls, for example, no record of the successful exit of a large bunch of foreign slaves, um, with loss of full chariot squadron, would ever have been memorialised in temples in the Delta or anywhere else. Uh, so again, uh, since we lack a lot of Egyptian material that may have included reference to this, or uh, in case of the temples and so on, probably wouldn't have anyway. Uh, but since we lack those records, it's very difficult to mount an, again an argument from silence as being at all significant here. Kishin. that to explain what we have in our Hebrew documents we would need to kind of invent a Hebrew leader who had experience of life at Egyptian court, given what's in those texts. So it's including knowledge of the treaty type documents and their format that we see, as we see in other cultures that we see in the Exodus and so on, as well as traditional Semitic legal and social usage, In other words, if we didn't know about Moses, we'd have to uh, uh, invent someone distressingly like Moses uh, to make any sense of the situation uh, that we have. Uh, This is uh, the Brooklyn papyrus uh, dated from the 18th century uh, BC. Uh, The Bible says that Israelites became numerous and spread across Egypt when they were there And while all the the documents from the Nile Delta have rotted away because of the Nile floods that covered the area annually for thousands of years, uh, we do have this uh, Brooklyn papyrus slave list uh, from the South uh, that has dozens of uh, slave names on it, including biblical forms of names. Uh, I'm probably going to mangle these, uh, but names like uh, Sherepa, the same name as the hebrew midwife in the exodus account uh, asher and Ishkar. so we have sort of uh, hebrew semitic uh, names in this uh, slave list from ancient egypt and famously the the tomb of uh, vizier rechmeyer from uh, 1450 bc Uh, shows uh, Semitic and Nubian slaves uh, employed in making bricks just as Exodus talks about the the Semites being employed in brick-making in Exodus 1 and and Exodus 5. Uh, So we know from Egyptian sources that there were people of Semitic origin in Egypt uh, who were slaves. Uh, We do know that. Uh, there's linguistic evidence as well. Uh, James Hofmeyer and others who I uh, mentioned here have documented various cultural and linguistic links between Late Bronze Age Egypt and the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, that they think point to the authenticity of these stories. So Noonan says that given the observation that at least some of the Egyptian loan words in the Exodus and Wilderness narratives were borrowed during the late Bronze Age. It's likely that the events of these narratives took place during the late Bronze Age, just as one would expect if they represent authentic history. So, we're talking about loan words from from Egyptian words coming into the the Hebrew. Edwin Umarchi uh, notes that the similarity of the Mosaic Covenant to the Hittite uh, treaties that we have. Uh, which date from the, from the second millennium BC, has convinced many scholars of the antiquity of the Mosaic Covenant. Again, getting these details about how did people write covenants in that culture in a way that people uh, writing hundreds and hundreds of years later in a different culture probably wouldn't have, have got right, uh, but which the biblical text does get right, which again points to its authenticity. Uh, more uh, getting the culture right, cultural verisimilitude. Scott and Curtis, Mitch in their commentary on A- Exodus notes that it displays an accurate knowledge of local conditions that are described in the story, uh, such as the Egyptian agricultural calendar, the use of arcadia Arkesia wood, uh, which is indigenous to parts of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, but which is not found in Palestine. So getting that there's a certain sort of wood that grows here, but not here. The kind of detail that people who are just writing historical fiction uh, without uh, accurate sources uh, tend to get wrong, but which people who are writing on the ground tend to get right. They argue it's difficult to believe that the authors in post-exilic Palestine could have known and accurately portrayed the conditions of second millennium Egypt, agricultural calendar and the trees and, and so on and so forth. Uh, Stephen Moshe and James Hoffmeyer again have used information from from geology and archaeology and digital topology and satellite imagery uh, to produce a map of the Eastern Nile Delta and Sinai Peninsula during the Bronze Age. And they find that the restored geography of their Bronze Age map correlates plausibly with the Exodus text. They say they provide a plausible map of the region that's described in the Exodus text. And that's something that, that Hofmeyer goes into in his books in some uh, detail. And it's very interesting detail and worth looking at if this is something that interests you. The sort of geography of the Exodus. Here is the the Manepta Stele, looking at the sort of other bookend of the Exodus story, uh, the Meneptah ne- ne- Stele, uh, uh, an inscribed stone, uh, dates from about uh, 1220 BC, 1220 BC. Uh, it's an extra biblical record that mentions a people group called Israel and it was set up by the pharaoh Menepta to commemorate uh, military victories in Canaan and it proclaims, uh, among many other things, it proclaims that Ashkelon is carried off and Giza is captured, Chenom is made into non-existence, Israel is wasted, his seed is not, in typical ancient Near East uh, hyperbole, of course, Israel was not destroyed, uh, uh, And so on but uh, here is a mention of uh, Israel Uh, it's interesting that Yenom uh, followed by an Egyptian hieroglyph that designates a town so this town of Yenom is made into non-existence Israel and that's followed by a hieroglyph that means a people so that the people of Israel is wasted his seed is not so there's a mention of the existence of a people group uh, in Canaan called Israel by uh, by uh, 1220 BC uh, at the latest so if you have uh, Semitic uh, slaves in uh, Egypt and you have Israel as a people group in Canaan um, possible that uh, the one got to the other came to Uh, the other from uh, the former, uh, as it were. And as that archaeologist noted, it's not too surprising that we don't have any uh, direct uh, evidence or certainly uh, no commonly agreed on direct uh, evidence uh, of um, that migratory uh, group uh, in the meantime. Also, recently there's been much discussion about the so-called Israel Berlin statue pedestal relief. Uh, This is uh, some hieroglyphs on the uh, sort of pedestal of a statue dating from the 14th to 13th century BC. There's a debate around the pronunciation of the uh, one of the words that has to be reconstructed because of the the damage to the relief Uh, and one school of thought argues that the the presence of a uh, particular sound Invalidates the possibility of reading this hieroglyph as as representing Israel Uh, But uh, there's another group of scholars who argue that there's no known location the name could refer to at the time other than Israel Um, If Israel is the correct reading of this hieroglyph, uh, these hieroglyphs um, uh, Spelling the spelling of Ashkelon and the proximity of the names Ashkelon and Canaan and Israel altogether in this list are again reminiscent of that 13th century Maneptus delay um, however the rendering of the name of Canaan is more similar to its spelling in the early 14th century BC. Uh, now one might argue that that's because the, uh, the guy who carved these uh, hieroglyphs uh, only knew the ancient form or was copying an older statue uh, to crib off or that this is an argument pointing towards the earlier of the two uh, exodus dates discussed by scholars um, it's uh, intriguing but unfortunately it seems to not be an, a knockdown argument uh, in either direction as it were but it is another piece of evidence for existence of, of Israel uh, in the 14th to 13th century uh, time period In 2017, since is quite recently, uh, excavations at uh, let's try this uh, Kirbet Al Masra, a 2.5-acre site in the Jordan Valley, six miles north of Jericho, revealed stone enclosures, rectangular rooms, and pottery dating to the Late Bronze Age II, uh, Iron Age I period. The site appears to have been used by a nomadic or semi-nomadic group at the very beginning of the Iron Age around 1200 BC. Now if you take that uh, 13th century exodus theory this may tie in. So Ariel university archaeologist David Ben Shlomo says we have not proved that these camps are from the period of the early Israelites but it is possible. If they are this might fit the biblical story of the Israelites coming from east of the Jordan River then crossing the Jordan and entering into the hill country of Israel later. Uh, This might be early signs of uh, Israel coming into the land uh, from the direction that the Bible mentions. So one to keep your eye on. Uh, And one last little thing here is quite interesting. We we read in, for example, in Exodus 29.12 Uh, take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And this phrase about the horns of the altar uh, repeats in various biblical passages in Exodus and Leviticus and in Psalms as well. Well, uh, we know culturally that horns were a symbol of strength or superhuman power and that persons accused of murder could hold on to the horns of an altar for sanctuary. This is mentioned in Exodus 21.14 21.14 and in 1 Kings one fifty, uh, Adoniah uh, feared Solomon so he rose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Uh, likewise Amos 3.14 talks about the horns of the altar being cut off and shall fall to the ground. Um, Amos was saying there's no refuge uh, for Israel. Well here some nice archaeology to illustrate this. Uh, horned altars. Uh, discovered at Beersheba in southern Israel and some very small horned altars in the picture next to that. Uh, But literally these altars had these sort of uh, corner uh, horns of the altar. Uh, So um, that illustrates uh, these uh, phrases from this uh, early time period. what about the history of the crossing of the Red Sea? Um, the best places to go uh, for this uh, are again to um, Colin Humphrey's book on the miracles of the Exodus, uh, and uh, Hoffmeyer's uh, material, where he talks about the geography uh, of of the of the Exodus. Um, those are good places, both, uh, and uh, Colin Humphreys is good on both the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan. Um, and I know um, uh, the Jordan, which used to be a bigger river than it is, uh, is these days, but he points out how um, uh, we have various reports of uh, you get mudslides along the riverbank that dam. Uh, the the river for a while and how this ties in with what the Bible says about the water sort of collected at a particular town uh, upstream uh, and and then sort of came back again and uh, Humphreys says that there is this sort of uh, uh, mechanism that you can point to by which um, the flow could have been stopped and he says uh, the, the miracle is not in the, in the mechanism of the of the crossing, but in the in the timing of that mechanism working, as it were, uh, that got arranged for the the river to be dammed just at the time when the Israelites needed to cross over. Um, also, there are similar theories about um, the crossing of the Red Sea, and of course, there's lots of discussion about where exactly that is. And I think Hoffmeyer is, is good good to go to on that discussion as well. Um, theories about uh, wind set down where wind driving in a certain direction for a certain length of time, can pile uh, water up. And indeed, the biblical text itself talks about God sending it, you know, there's a wind that that, that blew. Um, So it didn't happen exactly like you see in sort of Cecil B. DeMille's uh, The Ten Commandments with the the parting of the the Red Sea and, uh, and so on uh gives the sort of sort of hollywoodized version of what went on um, but there's actually interesting scientific theories about what went on that that tie in with some of the hints within the biblical text that are quite interesting to pursue. if you want to read uh colin humphrey's book interesting one here um, um talking about not sure i'd talk about the the horned altars these were cut stones israel was told not to use cut stones due to 27 6 and Joshua 8 31 Um, would be an interesting one to to look into see whether those are at specific time periods uh, and also how you would then account for what are the the horns of the altars that are mentioned within the biblical uh, text. Um, Of course just because Israel is told not to do something doesn't mean that they they don't do it. (laughs) They often do do things they're told not to um but that yeah that would be an interesting issue to look into uh yeah hoffmeyer's books are the place to go to for his stuff on, on the the geography and the Red Sea and so on, and the, and the route that uh, Israel takes instead of going instead of going north and along the coast up to Israel um, talks about that would be sort of the way of of, of um, conflict and war and death and so on. Why God takes them in this circuitous route round the south? And Hoffmeier shows that the Egyptians had a, uh, a series of fortifications. And water waterways connected with with fortifications are up in the north there, and that the route that the Israel actually took avoided those fortifications went across the Red Sea of course, and then they're into the into the uh, the wilderness uh, and so they they avoid um, a lot of the potential conflict that they could have had trying if they with Egypt if they tried to escape in a sort of shorter more direct route up north and shows from the, from the historical geography and history why, why that is and that ties in very interestingly with the, the Biblical text. So we've, we've started with uh, Abraham uh, and uh, looked at Ur and some of the cultural background there and we've seen that the Biblical text uh, often reflects the ancient Near East culture Accurately in ways that it probably wouldn't have if it were just written as a minimalist say in the sort of Babylonian era or even later. Looking at the Exodus uh, there is uh, not any sort of direct evidence of the Exodus if you like but that's not too surprising but we can show that there were Semitic slaves in Egypt who were employed in in making bricks just as the Bible says and we can show that Israel existed in Cana by the 13th century uh, at the latest. and uh, I've talked a little bit about some of the geography and some of the cultural things again loan words from Egyptian uh, knowledge of Egyptian uh, agricultural practices certain words etc that that give us some plausibility that these accounts were written by people who really knew those ancient cultures uh, in, in a way that people in the Babylonian era probably would not have done and that gives authenticity to the accounts. But the 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 more recently we come within uh, biblical history, of course, the more evidence we get because the more things have survived. Of course, if we're looking the further ago events we're looking at, uh, the longer things have had to be destroyed, like all of the the paperwork being destroyed by the flooding of the Nile and so on. Uh, uh, the longer things have had to be destroyed or to be built over or reused and so on in ways that means that we're not going to get access to it so the more recent events we tend to start getting access to more evidence as we work our way through the evidence here so okay let's go back to another section uh, from samson to solomon So here we are now in the in the era of the conquest and, and settlement, and I'm going to jump to the story of Samson in about 1100 BC in Israel. Geographically, here we have uh, this uh, stone seal, which I believe is uh, roughly would be roughly about the size of your thumb. Um, it's an 11th century BC stone seal, and uh, you may be able to work out it depicts a man here, uh, we have his legs and his arm and his head fighting a lion with its legs, and here's its its tail uh, around on the left of the, the seal here. A man fighting a lion discovered at Beth Shemeth, the house of the sun, in 2012. Now, the location, date, and image, which resembles contemporary depictions of lions, matches the Samson and Lion encounter uh, referenced in Judges chapter 14. Um, now, Beth Shemesh, where it was found, is about 19 miles west of Jerusalem, near the Iron Age border between the Israelites and the Philistines. Samson was born, lived part of his life, and was buried across the valley from Beth Shemesh, according to Judges 13:2 to 25 and 16:31. Samson's killing of a young lion in Judges 14 happened on the way from his family home to uh, T- Timnah, a site identified as Tel Betash, a few miles from Beth Shemesh. Now. Of course what you can't do is point to this seal and say this is a seal depicting Samson fighting the lion because it doesn't say on it this is Samson fighting the lion. I mean one could say um, here is evidence that in that culture at that time in that area there was this idea or this story about a man fighting a lion and maybe that's what the biblical story is based on one could say. Uh, so, this is not uh, proof of the Samson story, but it sure is interesting, isn't it, that from the right time period and location and so on, we have this seal with a picture of a man uh, fighting a lion, uh, just as is uh, referenced in Judges. Uh, at the very least, we can say the, the concept of a man fighting a lion is not out of bounds uh, in, uh, in that area. Judges 16 relates Samson's death in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon uh, in Gaza. And I won't read the, the whole quote of the, the passage from Judges 16 there. But basically uh, he's been tortured and blinded and everything. And they wheel him out to sort of uh, make fun of and uh, their revelry. Um, and he is chained between these two pillars. Uh, in the temple the, the pillars are holding up the temple and he prays to God to give him the strength uh, to uh, push down the pillars and to collapse uh, the temple. Uh, he bowed with all his strength and the house fell uh, upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. Well the the Gaza temple of Dagon just hasn't been excavated. Um, I don't know whether that's because people's uh, houses have been built on top of it or it hasn't been discovered or or, or what quite, but it just hasn't excavated that. But we can say it was probably quite similar to the Philistine Temple at Tel Kassil, uh, which was um, destroyed early in the 10th century BC and has since been excavated. So we have another Philistine Temple. Uh, from the era and and the area and you see from this picture of the Philistine temple that we have excavated that in the centre of the temple are these two pillars which are about seven foot apart here uh, in the centre of the temple which would presumably architecturally be used for holding up the, the roof of the temple and so on so that ties in very closely uh, with what's depicted architecturally in the Samson story in Judges. Uh, now here's a, a recent news story you may have heard. A mysterious stone slab unearthed in, in a Bible-era temple found near Jerusalem is being linked to the large stone that the Ark of the Covenant was said to rest on. Uh, at Beth Shemesh again. Uh, west of Jerusalem. Uh, so this uh, incident is mentioned in 1 Samuel 6 about the people at Beth Shemesh, uh reaping their, their harvest and they see the Ark of the Covenant coming on the, the cart that the Philistines have released. Uh, and they, A large stone was there so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and the chest that was within it in which were the Articles of Gold and put them on the large stone. Now, recently, this is from uh, January 2020, uh, it was reported that a large stone slab had been unearthed by archaeologists in a town near Jerusalem which may once have served as the resting place of the Lost Ark of the Covenant. The Israeli newspaper Heratz reports, the stone, which is the size of a table, was found inside a 3,000 year old square building that experts believe to have been a temple in the ancient settlement of Beth Shemesh that's now a modern town, uh, 20 kilometers from Jerusalem. One of the leaders of the dig, Dr Zivi Lederman of the Tel Aviv University, says uh, this would be a rare case in which we could merge the biblical narrative with an archaeological find. Uh, well, uh, I put a question mark in, it's rare, but uh, let's go on. Uh, the Ark later left Beth Shemesh and was taken to Jerusalem. But experts argue that the stone on which it had rested may have been become revered by the local people who built a temple around it, um, possibly having moved it up, up the hill. Uh, but then, at a later date, the town was captured by the Philistines who desecrated the building. Uh, which then remained buried and forgotten until being unearthed after three millennia. And here is an archaeologist with this stone in the square, uh, presumably uh, temple building on which the, uh, the ark may have rested. Avram Faust, a professor of archaeology at Bir Elan University, told the Christian Post that the finding in Beth Shemesh supports the archaeologist theory that there are, quote, very early traditions that made their way into the Bible. And of course, the later you put the actual biblical text, the harder it becomes to explain the uh, the inclusion of that early tradition within the text. Uh, The earlier you put the text, uh, the easier that is to explain. Faust warned that people shouldn't be so quick to dismiss that the stone tablet could have some connection to the Ark of the Covenant. Faust said this is a notable uh, stone, noticeable stone, placed in a conspicuous position within what looks like a temple at sort of the right time. So there are many dots that can connect this find to an old tradition that may have found its way into the biblical story. So a tie-up there being admitted by Faust at least. After the, the settlement era, we come to what's called the era of the United Kingdom, uh, of the Kingdom of David and Solomon and so on. Uh, about uh, 1000 BC, we're looking now. now Richard Dawkins, in Outgrowing God, says that King David made no impact either on archaeology or on written history outside the Bible. This suggests that if he existed at all, he was probably a minor, local chieftain rather than the great king of legend and song. Well, Dawkins obviously doesn't know uh, that the publication of fragments of an old Aramaic Aramaic stele from Tel Dan, uh, published in 1993 and 1995, brought to light the first recognised non-biblical mention of the 10th century King David in a text that reflected events of the year 841 and would have been set up at no great interval after that date. Uh, This stela famously mentions the House of David. Eric Klein, who is a professor of Classics, uh, Anthropology and History at George Washington University, says that the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person, uh, i.e. yes he was, and there was a House of David. Uh, The House of David uh, inscriptions are not only on the Tel Dan inscription but also the the Misha stelae, also called the Moabite stone from the 9th century uh, BC. Kenneth Kitchen, the Egyptologist, uh, has argued that the phrase heights of David uh, can be found on an Egyptian topographical lift, list uh, of uh, Shoshenk I, uh, and this lo- locates uh, David's heights in the Negev area dating to around 925 BC, about forty five years after David, uh, as Kitchen says, within living memory of the man, if he's right about that. In 2005, Excavations in the hometown of Goliath, the Philistine city of Gath, reveals a Semitic inscription dating to the 10th 9th centuries BC, bearing an Indo-European name that resembled, but wasn't, but resembled Goliath. Aaron Mayer, head of the excavations there, says the inscription shows us that David and Goliath's story reflects the cultural reality of the time getting the type of name right for the culture. We have, uh, from 2014, another one of these little clay seal impressions about the size of your thumb, a boule, uh, Jimmy Harden, a professor of uh, Department of Anthropology in Middle Eastern cult- Cultures at MSU, Uh, Talking about this fine says our results indicate that this site is integrated into a political entity that's typified by elite activities. This is because these little clay seals were used for sealing sort of official documentation uh, and deliveries of letters and so on. Uh, So that indicates that you have a sort of centralized state that's using uh, writing and messengers uh, over a large area to run things. So, an integrated political entity, typified by elite activities, suggesting that a state was already being formed in the 10th century BC. These boulé date to the 10th century, and this lends general support to the historical veracity of David and Solomon, as recorded in the Hebrew Biblical texts, That they, that the kingdoms at the time were not just little minor local chieftains, as Dawkins suggests. In 2018, there were just discoveries at Tel Eton, which is believed to be the biblical site of Eglon, uh, yielded further proof of the biblical account of David's kingdom. Uh, this is on the, the southeastern edge of ancient Israel's territory, uh, construction dating to the period of what would have been King David's period, uh, and including a construction type um, often said to uniquely point to uh, Israel architecture. Uh, the four-roomed house and discoveries from this outpost city fit the biblical description of a continually expanding kingdom during the reign of David. Um, archaeologist Dr. Elliot Mezer from the Hebrew University uh, here on the top right has made a number of very interesting discoveries in Jer- digs in Jerusalem including what she thinks is King David's palace uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, Yosef Garfinkel uh, et al, in their recent book In the Footsteps of King David, Revelations from a Biblical City, say this. Um, worth quoting them at some length here because it's very interesting. Uh, they say historical processes and cultural phenomena referred to in the, Bi- in the Bible relating to the 10th century BC find concrete expression at uh, this dig they've been doing at Kerbet Kiefer at the same time period. They say such clear examples of correspondence between archaeological finds and the Biblical tradition stand in contrast to the theories of scholars advocating the minimalist approach and their assertion that the Bible was written during the Hellenistic or Persian period or at the end of the 7th century BC and contains no historical memory but who have, these minimists they have, say have no data or finds to support such views. On the other hand, the Kerbit Kiefer excavations have provided archaeological evidence corroborating historical memories from the time of King David. The excavations show that at the end of the eleventh century BC an urban society and central monarchy began to take shape in the kingdom of Judah. The proposal that the Bible Bible's written many hundreds of years after the events it describes, and it reflects only the period in which it was written, is no longer sustainable, they say. Of course, after David, we have uh, Solomon, about 980 to 927 B.C. Uh, Elliot Mazar again has discovered what she thinks is a wall that Solomon had built. Uh, uh, in Jerusalem, that's mentioned in One Kings three one. She says it appears to validate a biblical passage. Uh, this tenth century BC walls two hundred and thirty feet, or that's seventy meters long, about six meters or twenty feet tall, stands along what was then the edge of Jerusalem between the Temple Mount and the ancient city of David. Uh, and it's part of a defensive complex that included a gatehouse, various buildings, guard tower etc and artefacts found in and around the complex it's often how you date these things, pottery and coins and so on uh, point uh, Mazar to the 10th century uh, date of this structure and of course King Solomon's Famous Mines uh, you may even know the writer uh, the Haggard story of King Solomon's Mines, the adventure stories and so on But King Solomon's mines are often again relegated to historical myth, Uh, and we have uh, here um, copper mines from the Late Bronze Age site, uh, which were considered to uh, to be a Late Bronze Age site, sorry, uh, relating to the New Kingdom of Egypt in the 13th and early 12th centuries BC. Um, But the University of Tel Aviv archaeologist Ben Yosef says. high precision radiocarbon dating of uh, don- donkey dung at the site as well as of uh, various textiles and other organic material found at this site recently has showed that the mining camp's heyday was actually in the 10th century bc the era of the biblical kings of david and and solomon um Thomas Levy of the University of California, San Diego, says this research represents a a confluence, a meeting between the archaeological and scientific data in the Bible. Uh, We have a top-down picture of the the site here, aerial picture. The site contains about 100 buildings, including a fortress uh, in the middle of a 24-acre site that's now covered with black slag. Uh, Ben Yosef says that if the Bibles claim that David brought the the Edomites to heal, the Edomites ran this camp, uh, if this is accurate, he says there's a serious possibility that Jerusalem got its wealth from taxing these mining operations. And Solomon embarked on a building campaign that included the first temple in Jerusalem, of course, and many of the implements used in worship in the temple were made of bronze which requires much copper to form the alloy. And here we have uh, these uh, um, copper mining camps that uh, David is is said to have uh, sort of taken under his jurisdiction, uh, operating in their heyday during Solomon's era. Uh, So in the the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, according to 1 Kings, uh, and probably attached that whole region because indeed the, the bottom stratum of the mining site revealed a period of extensive mining that lasted for about 40 years around 940 BC and produced nine feet of slag but then there was a major disruption to the mining about 910 BC followed by a resumption uh, in the ninth century. In uh, the layers associated with this, this disruption of the mining operation Archaeologists found an Egyptian scarab from the eastern Nile region and an amulet linked to the Egyptian goddess Mut. So, 1 Kings 14 says that after Solomon's death, Israel and Judah were invaded by Shishak, the Egyptian pharaoh, who began raiding and conquering much of Palestine around about uh, 925 uh, AD. So these, these dates, and of course these are all sort of a, 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 the dating, uh, not to the year, you know, approximate datings, uh, but this kind of uh, fits in, uh, again, uh, culturally, the background of what's going on in the Bible. So of course after the United Kingdom uh, period of David and Solomon, we get the house divided, the divided kingdom era of, of Israel. Uh, where we have a division between Israel in the north and Judah uh, in the south. Uh, This is their period of divided kingdom, or the two kingdoms. Uh, And I've stuck here at the bottom in terms of the near Assyrian empire, uh, Shalmaneser III, because in the British Museum, and here's my photo from the British Museum. I just love the name of, of this artifact. It's called. It's like something out of a, a, a fantasy novel or something. It's called the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Dum dum dum. You know. uh, he was king of Assyria uh, in uh, the 9th century uh, BC. There. Um, this is particularly interesting because uh, it features uh, the carvings uh, on it uh, feature uh, what may be the earliest ancient depiction of a biblical figure, uh, namely Jehu, king of Israel from the ninth century BC. Uh, he's mentioned in uh, two kings, uh, nine and ten, uh, Jehu. And i'll give you a closer up picture of this so here's the sort of panel here this is a closer up of, of the panel and here's an even closer up of the panel here is this uh, kneeling figure who may well be jehu uh bowing before sholamanca here on the left and we have the the symbols this winged symbol on the left and this sort of star symbol on the right maybe a, a star of david i'm not sure um, and, but, and here's a translation into English of what's on the, the, the text that relates to this panel and here's Shanamatsa saying A tribute of Jehu's son of Omri, I received from him silver gold, a gold bowl, a gold vase with a pointed bottom, golden tumblers, golden buckets, lot of gold a tin and a staff for a king and spears so, sort of listing the tribute uh, that Jehu had uh, given to him. There is uh, Jehu uh, here. Now, a little after uh, that time, when Sargon the Second, king of Syria, died in seven o five, so into the eighth century now. Uh, died in seven o five BC. Uh, various subject states tried to throw off their subservience to Assyria and Hezekiah, king of Judah, stopped paying tribute and entered into a uh, league with, with Egypt. In 703, uh, King Sennacherib, who was Sargon's son, uh, began campaigns to quash this opposition to Assyrian rule. And Hezekiah was expecting the Egyptians to come to his aid against the Assyrians, and they didn't. So here's Hezekiah, uh, about 700 BC, and Karib in the Assyrian Kingdom. We're having a clash here. This is Hezekiah, the time is uh, of Isaiah, and so on. King Kings says, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years and rebelled against the king of Assyria and didn't serve him. And here we have uh, one of these seal impressions again. Uh, This is uh, the seal of Hezekiah. It says on this seal, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. So here is Hezekiah's personal seal impression. And Hezekiah to prepare for the upcoming uh, battle expected uh, the Assyrians to lay siege uh, to Jerusalem and he redirected the water springs from outside Jerusalem to inside so that the, the invaders couldn't live off the water springs and that they would have a source of water and they had this construction of the famous Hezekiah's water tunnel with the two teams of diggers gradually digging towards each other and listening through the rock to try to find each other managed to find each other astonishingly digging through this rock and you can still in Jerusalem today visit Hezekiah's tunnel and this inscription from the from the diggers describing the moment when they found each other and, and, and dug through the wall uh, to meet up. Astonishing stuff. So in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Samar, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And again, in the British Museum, we have uh, this uh, rather gory uh, panel of the siege of Lachish. Uh, You see archers here, people going up uh, siege ramps, uh, people being skewered on the ends of of spears or poles. Uh, There's a bigger of that saying this is where that close-up was on that panel. We have a number of these panels, a whole sort of room full of these uh, beaten panels showing the siege of Lachish, which was one of the chief cities of the kingdom of Judah. And it was captured in 701 BC by Sennacherib on his uh, campaign. Now, then Isaiah 37 noticed uh, Not surprise us uh, so that Sennacherib uh, gets this report that one Tirhaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight him. Sort of taking uh, opportunity that uh, Sennacherib was fighting in, in, in uh, Judah, uh, the king of Cush uh, starts kicking up a fuss and... Uh, When Sinarakarim finds out about this, he sends messengers to Hezekiah in Jerusalem saying, uh, say to Hezekiah, uh, don't let the God that you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Basically, I'm going to go off and deal with this this Tehaka chap, but I'll be back, you know, like the Terminator, I'll be back. Uh, And again, we didn't have any extra biblical uh, reference to this king Tehaka of Cush, uh, until we dug some up, and here from the British Museum again is uh, King Tahaka standing underneath the protection of this uh, ram, which uh, signifies his uh, god uh, uh, Amun, the god Amun and Tahaka mentioned here in Isaiah. So, so that goes on, and it seems Senaraka uh, defeats uh, Tahaka, puts him back in line, and then comes back to finish the job. And Isaiah gives uh, this message from God uh, concerning the king of Assyria uh, to Hezekiah. He says, um, the king of Assyria will not enter Jerusalem or shoot an arrow here. He'll not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he'll return. He will not enter the city. I will defend the city and save it for the sake of David, my servant. And then we have the story about the, the angel of the Lord uh, went out and put to death. And the better translation here is uh, some 5,180 men of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Samaracharab broke camp and withdrew, tail between his legs, as it were, returned to Nineveh and stayed there and never, never came back. Well, talking of Isaiah, this very recent discovery, this is, uh, made by Elliot Nazar in her Jerusalem digs, uh, from 2018, uh, uh, a slightly squashed seal impression. You do have to reconstruct one letter uh, of the inscription here. Uh, but if you do that, it seems very plausible, uh, given also where it was found and the, the dating of the, the level that it was found at and the other things it was found with, that this is a seal and prophet uh, of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, just south of the Temple Mount, uh, Edith Mezar uh, discovered this seal belonging to Isaiah, prophet, or the prophet. The upper portion of the impression is missing, and the left side is slightly damaged. But reconstructing a few Hebrew letters in the damaged area would make the impression read "belonging to Isaiah the prophet," uh, and that was found uh, near the uh, the royal. Uh, bakery institutions between the Mount and the city of David and with other things from that era and so on. Well this uh, back to the British Museum uh, this so-called Sonera Caribs Prism in cuneiform writing you can see on here and this gives the Assyrian side of the of the, uh, the campaign and this is very interesting because this is what the Sir so, okay, Prism says about this campaign, says, As for Hezekiah the Jeudite, who did not submit to my yoke, forty six of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by levelling with battering rams, and by bringing up siege engines, and by attacking and storming on foot, by mines, tunnels, and breaches, I besieged and took them. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. But this is earthworks uh, besieging the city to keep people in, not earthworks against the city walls, right? Not not ramps, siege ramps, or, or works against the city walls. He says, um, I threw up earthworks against him, the one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, going back to the earlier, I cut off from his land, and to various kings under him he gave them. But no mention Of what actually happened to Jerusalem or to Hezekiah. Um, Now, as we know, uh, in the ancient world people didn't tend to record their defeats. The purpose of uh, this kind of recording is to big yourself up and say, you know, I took all of these cities and gave them to so and so, and I had lots of wealth, and I was really successful. Um, But this sort of, this sort of, uh, I caged Hezekiah up in his royal city, turned people back to their misery, Um, but not saying, you know, and like I did with Lachish, I put up siege ramps and I took the city and I cut off Hezekiah's head and paraded it around on a pole, or whatever, um, is an interesting silence and perhaps a significant one that ties in uh, with the biblical account of what went on uh, in those events. Here we have some of the archaeology of Lachish, for example, where we've we've dug up Lachish, and we have um, we can see the Assyrian assault ramp built against the walls of of Lachish. There's the walls. Here's the ramp going up to the walls in the British Museum. This photo I took of a stand that has various arrowheads and uh, slingshot balls and things from the battle at Lachish between Sennacherib. And the uh, Judah. But we have none of that sort of archaeology from that era at Jerusalem. But we found it at Lachish. Also it's interesting to note that the Greek historian Herodotus from the 5th century BC wrote about the destruction of Sennacherib's army at what he calls the entrance to Egypt. And again look at the map and see that uh, Judah is right smack between uh, Assyria and uh, that is with going out to Egypt. So the destruction of Sennachera's army at the entrance to Egypt. Now Herodotus says that a plague of field mice came out, obviously rather hungry, and they chewed all the Assyrians' leather bowstrings and quivers and shield straps. And that's why the, the army collapsed. Uh, Herodotus attributes this destruction of the fighting effectiveness of Sennacherib's army uh, to divine intervention. Now, of course, Herodotus is writing in the 5th century BC, uh, but it's interesting to see that here we have, you know, a a, a, a pagan Greek uh, uh, historian uh, saying that, yes, Sennacherib's army, uh, its fighting effectiveness at least was destroyed in the right kind of area, Uh, by divine intervention, and he has his own sort of story as to how that happened, although he's writing a lot later, several hundred years later. So what we can say is that extra-biblical evidence shows that unlike Lachish, make the comparison between the two, Sennacherib didn't attack Jerusalem. There's no ramp or shooting of arrows against Jerusalem. Sennacherib therefore didn't take Jerusalem, the Assyrian army was suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention and Sennacherib returned to Nineveh and indeed he didn't return to finish the job as he had before. He'd already gone to defeat that king of Kush saying, you know, I'll be back uh, and then he doesn't finish the job. It's kind of inexplicable. Uh, well, the Bible has an explanation uh, and that does seem to tie in even with uh, the account that we have from the Assyrian side of things. So you see now, as we're as we're getting into sort of more recent history, as it were, we're beginning to have more direct evidence of things, and that's kind of what you'd expect. It, it's very implausible to expect, you know, direct evidence of Abraham was here. Uh, uh, even if there were some material uh, that mentioned him from the time, it's very unlikely that it would have survived until now. And even if it survived until now, very unlikely that we would have discovered it. Um, but the more recent things have had less time in which to be destroyed uh, and so it's more likely that it, it exists now if it, there were some original evidence tying to a biblical event uh, and uh, therefore not not uh, more likely that we, we find uh, those things so as we come into these more recent issues so we start getting direct evidence of the existence of particular people particular. Battles, particular cities, uh, in events, in particular time periods, and so on, like the existence of Hezekiah, the existence of Isaiah, um, the existence of a siege at Lachish, uh, but not at Jerusalem, and so on. Right. Okay. So we're into the the home straight uh, now. Let's share uh, the period of the exile in. Babylon so are coming up to the the area of, of Daniel uh we've uh, looked at, at uh, the people we get to Judah alone and Nebuchadnezzar starts uh, making a mention here Nebuchadnezzar the time of the Babylonian exile uh here we go uh, a cuneiform uh, tablet uh, sorry about slightly grainy picture to enlarge it taken under rather dark conditions from my uh, Kindle pad in the British Museum. Uh, The Babylonian Chronicles, uh, this tablet is one of a series of chronicles from Babylon that we have that summarise the sort of principal historical events from each year uh, from 747 BC to 280 BC. So we've got a lot of these Babylonian Chronicles. And in 605, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Crown Prince, uh, replaces his father, Nebopulsar, as the commander-in-chief of the army, led an army out to the Euphrates, defeats the Egyptians, and later that year, Nebopulsar died, and Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon to be crowned as king. And then later on marches back to Egypt, uh, doesn't do so well this time, marches out to Syria, and marching west again in uh, December 598, uh, as Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had ceased to pay tribute. Same old story, eh? So uh, Nebuchadnezzar armies uh, besiege Jerusalem, and he eventually captures Jerusalem on the 16th of March 597 BC. And the new king of Judah, Jehoiachin, was captured and carried off to Babylon. Uh, and a series of expeditions to Syria finishes off this chronicle but it's mentioning here particular Biblical events and and people uh, from the Bible Here's a a clay seal again these are really useful because they they put people's names to a date and a place this clay seal found in the ashes of a house that was burnt down when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem in the 6th century and it bears the words belonging to Nathan Melech, servant of the king. This is quite a distinctive name and it's found in the Old Testament story of King Josiah of Judah, uh, Josiah the reformer who removed the symbols of pagan worship from Jerusalem mentioned in 2 Kings 23 and of course it's not possible to be absolutely certain that the name on this seal refers to the same person who's mentioned in 2 Kings. Uh, but the description of Nathan Melech as an official servant of the king is is a match as is the location and the timing of this find. So this is plausibly uh, the seal of this uh, servant who is mentioned in the Bible. The, then we have the fall of Jerusalem and the, and the exile following the, the, the siege Nebuchadnezzar Installed uh, Zedekiah as a vassal king, but he also resulted and had to lay siege again. And that's when he broke through uh, the walls and uh, just sort of took over the whole thing wholesale. Uh, Zedekiah was blinded and taken captive to Babylon, where he remained a a prisoner until his death. And just last year, his uh, Shimon Gibson uh, talking about uh, an archaeological dig, Uh, results uh, from 2019 uh, were the combination of an ashy layer full of artefacts mixed with arrowheads and a very special ornament we see at the top here an arrowhead and at the bottom an ornament I think this is sort of a a cluster of sort of grapes under a part of an earring I think Uh, indicates some kind of devastation and destruction. Nobody abandons gold and jewel jewellery and nobody has arrowheads in their domestic refuse, he says. The arrowheads are Scythian arrowheads known to be used by the Babylonians and together this evidence points to the historical conquest of the city of Babylon. And of course, Ezekiel um, supposedly completed about five seventy-five sixty-five BC The book of Ezekiel contains a a prophetic prediction about the fate of the powerful seaport city-state of Tyre after the Babylonian exile. Uh, You can read about this in Ezekiel 26. This prophecy supposedly dates from 586 BC, which is the eleventh year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. And there seem to be a number of specific predictions when you, you tease them out. That more than one nation will attack Tyre. uh, That the attacks will be successive. That Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will attack. That Nebuchadnezzar will first of all attack coastal towns. That Tyre will be levelled. That the rubble will be put into the sea. That Tyre will become a place where fishermen can dry their nets. And that the inhabitants will never rebuild Tyre. Now I put here a, a, a map. Of Tyre to show you that there was a, a plain with a, a city of, of, of Tyre and a, a little island just off the coast which had a fortress of Tyre on it as well. This whole sort of Tyre uh, region city-state of Tyre. So what happened? Well uh, from the extra evidence we know that about 25 years after this prophecy is supposedly made Tyre was besieged for 13 years by Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar took the main city of Tyre in 573 BC, uh, at which point the island citadel surrendered uh, to him. But 250 years later, 250 years later in 322 BC, Alexander the Great on his campaigns uh, had occasion to attack Tyre. He used the rubble from the old mainland city that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and slave labour from the surrounding nations to build a causeway out to the island fortress of Tyre to capture it, because he, did, he didn't have a navy with him. Uh, to attain enough material for the causeway, the mainline site was scraped clean. and You can see the difference here between this uh, map Uh, that we saw originally, and this uh, 19th century map, where we now have between what had been the mainland and the island, this isthmus uh, had grown up around the causeway that uh, Alexander the Great had built from the one to the other. So that's the difference between Tyre, uh, a map from the the 4th century BC, and one in the 19th century, that shows the difference that this had made. Uh, here is uh, Ezekiel mentioned on our, our timeline there uh, so this is 250 years after the, the era of Ezekiel we get Alexander the Great in about 322 BC so um, after treating Tyre with the greatest atrocity says uh, this historian uh, Alexander rebuilt and replanted it uh, that future generations might regard him as the founder of a new city. Uh, that's Shoshe uh, Chandadutt from the Historical Studies and Recreations. And although there is now a, a town of Tyre in the vicinity of the ancient city, it, it's got no connection with the, with the ancient city of Tyre, which is long since gone, and um, indeed fishermen have used the, the, the spot of, the, of ancient Tyre for generations for the spreading of their as their nets. So um, that's just a little uh, side point about what's also sort of being talked about uh, at the time and its fulfilment o- over history. We come to the uh, Babylonian exile period and uh, we have Jeremiah on the map here. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied that the people of Judah would be captive in Babylonia for 70 years and Jeremiah's message, according uh, to the book of Jeremiah, was recorded by a man named Barak, son of Nuriah. Well, interestingly, among the schools of these uh, scores of these inscribed uh, thumb-sized boule that have come to light in Jerusalem, is one that reads, "Belonging to uh, Bariah, the son of Nuriah, the scribe." Uh, the, the owner is Barach, uh, Barachiah, Barach, Barak being a shortened version of the same name. His father is Neriah uh, there's little doubt really that this seal impression was made by Jeremiah's uh, scribe uh, so here, here is the seal impression of the the guy who, who physically wrote the book of Jeremiah as the scribe for the prophet Jeremiah so here we have a picture of the extent of the in orange here the, the Babylonian uh, Empire which uh, Israel is now in uh, exile and people taken from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon to serve as servants uh, for the state uh, and uh, particularly here mentioning about Daniel. Now interestingly Greek historians had described the building of Babylon to uh, Queen Samuramat a, a queen mother in Assyria who we now know actually had nothing to do with the building of Babylon but in the book of Babylon uh, book of daniel uh, chapter 4 verse 30 it says um, as the king uh, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of babylon he said is this not the great babylon i have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty so saying the bible here is saying nebuchadnezzar uh was the one who was really responsible for the building uh, of the, the the greatness of babylon not uh talking about Queen Samo Ramat, uh, as the Greek historians did. Again, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was one of those figures whom we had no extra Biblical evidence of, and and sort of uh, German 19th century uh, liberal scholars used to say was just a made-up figure. Uh, But here we have, for example, um, uh, a stone uh, mentioning uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who cares for Isagel and Isa, eldest son of nebo Pulsar, king of Babylon. Or oh, the cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar II, uh, a clay cylinder, cuneiform text all over it, describes three palaces which Nebuchadnezzar built for himself in Babylon. And we've got other references to Nebuchadnezzar in connection with building works. Uh, here we have a little cuneiform thing that mentions one Nebo Sarskin, a chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar um, a, a visiting professor from uh, Vienna at the uh, British Museum discovered this uh, in 2007. Uh, just sort of stumbled across it, uh, it came across uh, Nabu Shashruka Ukin. Everything gets uh, the names are described slightly differently in different languages and, and there wasn't uh, uniform spelling and things at the time of course um, described uh, as the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon uh, so uh, Professor Djoser who's an Assyriologist uh, checked his Old Testament and in chapter 39 of the book of Jeremiah he found albeit spelled slightly differently the same name Nebusaskim And this tablet dated to the 10th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar the second 12 years before the siege of Jerusalem. He said uh, finding something like this tablet where we see a person mentioned in the Bible making an everyday payment to the temple in Babylon and quoting the exact date is quite extraordinary. Uh, King Jehoiachin uh, was uh, taken uh, to uh, Babylon. Uh, taken prisoner, and uh, when one evil Merodach, uh, evil not being used in the way that we in English use the word evil, of course, uh, evil Merodach became king of Babylon. He took uh, pity on Jehoiachin and released him from prison. And the biblical text actually mentions that the Babylonian king spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the the kings who were with him in Babylon and uh, says that the Evo Merodach uh, gave Jehoiakin a set of uh, provisions, uh, daily provisions. Uh, as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life, uh, in 2 Kings 25. Well, here we actually have, in cuneiform, the Babylonian document that lists the provisions that are to be given to uh, King Jehoiakin. Uh, from the administrative documents Joachim's name is clearly legible on the tablets uh, and there's a documentation uh, documentation for an allotment of grain and oil and various foodstuffs that he is to be provided uh, he, him and his uh, retinue uh, fascinating tie-in of just, just this little aside comment in Two Kings about these rations and here we have the extra biblical list of the rations that are being provided. Uh, This is a seal of Eliakim, steward of Jehoiakim, who is mentioned in 2 Kings 19.2, discovered by uh, William F. Albright in the 1920s. It says says on it, the property of Eliakim, steward of Jehoiakim. Now you know the the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, of course, and we it's you know difficult to get direct evidence of uh the the really spectacular uh events of this uh, story Um, but we do know some of the background we know that burning as a penalty for crime appears twice in the code of Hammurabi um, set forth by the babylonian king in the 18th century bc Uh, we know that uh, another early babylonian monarch called rimsin also used burning uh, as a form of execution so it's not too surprising um, when Shadot, Meshach and Abednego are sentenced to a a burning execution. Uh, Also, uh, there's this report that there's a a clay prism that's been found in Babylon that's now meant to be in the Istanbul Museum uh, that lists uh, names that are very similar to the names of Daniel's three friends, Uh, although we can't be certain that they're the actual men mentioned in the Bible. but there are, um, so there's uh, Ardi Nabu, official to the royal prince. This name is the equivalent of the Aramaic name Abegnigo, Ari Nabu, Abegnigu, and may, may in fact be the first mention of one of Daniel's friends from outside the Bible. Another found on this list is Hananu, commander of the king's merchants. And the name Hananu may be the Babylonian equivalent of the Hebrew name Hananiah Hanana, you know uh, and another name found on the list is uh, Michelim Marduk, uh, the Babylonian name in you know, the Babylonian god Marduk, um, as an official of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, um, if Marduk is left out of the name, we wind up with Meshalim, which may refer to Mishael. It may be a form of Michel, Mishak, Michel, uh and they've just added Marduk to sort of Babylonianize the name. Uh, and the fact that these three names—not only that these three names are similar to the these three names in the story, but that the three names are found on the you know the list as officials, which Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon to be trained as to to serve as servants as officials in the Babylonian court—is um, suggestive. But, of course, not conclusive. Now, you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den, of course. Uh, And here we have uh, a relief at the British Museum of lion hunting. And uh, lions in their their lion den here. In ancient Assyria, lion hunting was considered the sport of kings. Uh, Today, in in the UK, the royal family tend to play uh, polo. Uh, from horseback, you know, Uh, but back then it was uh, lion hunting, uh, symbolic of the ruling monarch's duty to protect and fight for the people, so say. Well, here we have a sculpted relief from the British Museum that illustrates the sporting exploits of the last great Assyrian king, Asher from the 7th century BC, uh, which were created for his palace at Nineveh in modern-day northern Iraq so um, the culture at that time in this sort of uh, the previous uh, regime the Assyrian before the Babylonian Empire kings had uh, been the sport of kings to to hunt lions here's a, a close up uh, of a, a king you know, skewering uh, this rather fearsome looking uh, lion he looks very calm calm about it doesn't he huh Uh, So the fact that uh, Kenza would have had um, a lion den uh, to hand uh, is perhaps not all that culturally surprising. If you've ever thought, now, how come he throws him to a lion den? Are these like wild lions that they have to kind of go out into the countryside and find some sort of lion den to throw him in? or It's quite plausible that actually this was like the the royal hunting estate, uh, as it were, and they kept lions to be hunted uh, and that they threw Daniel into this uh, lion's mm. den. Uh, so then, uh, <coughs> right at the end of the, the exile, we have the famous incident of Belshazzar and Belshazzar's feast. Uh, was Belshazzar really king of Babylon, as Daniel 5 claims? Some scholars have said that in fact he wasn't king and uh, use this as evidence that the book of Daniel is not historically reliable. So uh, Babylonian texts tell us that at the time of uh, the feast story uh, in the Bible in Daniel, in 539 BC, uh, there was another king, uh, Nabidonis, who was Belshazzar's father. So wouldn't that make Belshazzar the crown prince at the time, rather than the king? Well, uh, a chap called George Heath White, who was then a a a final year student in Cambridge University, a student of Assyrian, made an interesting discovery whilst translating some 6th century BC Babylonian tablets for his dissertation. Uh, George was following the lives of some Judean exiles in Babylon and came across a character who was given the adopted name of Belshazzar, which means Lord uh, Bel, the god Bel, uh, protect the king. Uh, This uh, Babylonian name adoption was a custom for those who worked in the government, as we know from from Daniel's case. We're talking about adding. uh, Uh, God's names to people's names to to sort of Babylonianize them and so on so uh, this Judean uh, Belshazzar uh, appears in three texts and in the first two he's Belshazzar but in the third text he's changed, the same guy has changed his name back to one that reflects his Hebrew origins and Heath White wondered what might have made him want to stop being called Belshazzar Well, research has also shown that in Babylonian times, you weren't allowed to have the same name as the king. So if you were called Belshazzar, and someone who was also called Belshazzar became king, it was time for you to change your name. George points out that this Judean government worker may have changed his name for other reasons. But it is pretty plausible that he did so because Nabodonus's son, Belshazzar, really had become king. That would explain everything. But wasn't Nabonus himself still king? Well, actually, another text uh, translated by a chap called Gibson records that in the year 552 BC, Nabodonus had relocated to the Arabian desert and made his son co regent ruling in Babylon now this also explains why Belshazzar offers Daniel the title of third highest in the kingdom if we look at Daniel five sixteen uh, so third highest in the kingdom after Nabadonis and Belshazzar uh, Fascinatingly this year 552 was the very same year the Judean civil servant changed his name so that he wouldn't be called Belshazzar anymore. This year that we have the record of Nabodonus relocating to the Arabian desert and making his son co-king, co-regent. So that all ties up together. Uh, For this research George received a a university award. Uh, It's circumstantial evidence but as he puts it uh, perhaps, if correct, a little bit more evidence to counter the popular opinion that Belshazzar being called king in Daniel 5, one is an error. Uh, he was king, he was a co-regent, he was king even though he was officially second in command, and that's why he can only make Daniel third in command uh, in Daniel uh, 5.16. so daniel 5:29. then at belshazzar's command daniel was clothed in purple a gold chain placed around his neck and was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom so here we have a, a, another cuneiform c- cylinder cylinder of nabodonus in which king nabodonus mentions his co-regent uh, and it mentions belshazzar my firstborn son the offspring of my heart and cuneiform temple receipts from sipar Uh, also show Belshazzar presenting animals as an offering of the king. Uh, So we've got various bits of data from Babylonian sources that all actually tie in and make sense of what's going on in in the Daniel story here. And then Babylon falls to King Cyrus of Persia. And here we have a little uh, inscription on one of these little uh, barrels uh, uh, of inscriptions uh, from King Cyrus a little bit of propaganda talking about uh, I entered Babylon as a friend and established my royal residence in the palace of the princes amid jubilation and rejoicing you know everyone was so happy that I'd conquered them my numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace because uh, there was numerous troops i also restored to the cities on the other side of the tigris like the foreigners <laughs> their hitherto long ruined temples i also gathered up their one-time inhabitants and returned them to their homelands so he like the new the new power made himself popular by sending home the people who'd been taken into exile, sending them home saying you can rebuild your temples and stuff so long as you all still sort of nominally pay tribute to me and you're sort of under my rulership. Uh, And of course this was the end of the exile uh, as we've seen as had been uh, prophesied by Jeremiah. So let me stop there before we have one last section to go, but I'm going to check the the questions panel again. No additional questions as yet. You've got one last section to to think of anything you want to to put to me uh, as we tie up and try and draw some conclusions and lessons from uh, what we've seen uh, together here. So share that. Here we go. So according this last section of responding to Dawkins' doubts about the Old Testament and applying some lessons learned. So let's come back to those uh, assertions, those accusations that Dawkins makes about the Old Testament in his recent book, Outgrowing God. Uh, that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. Uh, that the Old Testament has stories where there's an extraordinary claim that requires an extraordinary amount of evidence Uh, that there's an absence of extra-biblical evidence for the certain uh, for the truth of certain Old Testament stories and the assertion that there is uh, the existence of extra-biblical evidence that actually positively counts against the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories this, as we saw, is a matter of uh, false generalizations, uh, reheated uh, Humeanism, uh, an argument from silence that's not a nuanced, careful argument from silence but a rather suspicious one, and a matter of simple historical ignorance of the archaeological and historical data. going through them we see that of course whilst some scholars don't take the old testament seriously as history we've talked the minimalist maximalist divide but there is a divide there are plenty of scholars who do take the old testament seriously as history and i've referenced and quoted from many of them in this talk uh, particularly folks like uh, k.a kitchen kenneth kitchen um, if there's one Book. If I had to just recommend one book to read on the historical reliability of the Old Testament, it would be Kenneth Kitchen's book on the reliability of the Old Testament. Um, we've also referenced quite a few times folks like James Hoffmeyer, uh, but also works by folks like Alan Millard, uh, Ian Provan, Tremper Longman, um, etc., who are mentioned on, on these uh, book covers here. Dawkins asserts that this, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We'll get into what do you actually mean by what, what standards are you setting? Um, are, are they one that could potentially be met by historical evidence? And if so, well, what is the historical evidence? Um, but not only that, uh, we've seen that there is indeed, of course, the Bible saying something is itself evidence. Uh, I think the biblical claims, like other historical texts, should be taken as innocent until proven guilty rather than considered guilty until proven innocent. But we've seen that there is extra biblical evidence that at least corroborates various miraculous events and prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, We've looked at the the salvation of Jerusalem from uh, Saneric We've looked at the prophecy about what would happen to Tyre we've looked at the the prophecy that the the exile wouldn't be permanent and that there would be a return from exile um, and that there, there was and so on uh, we've touched on those and I, I've done uh, talks at ELF in the past that you'll be able to find on the ELF website on uh, biblical prophecy if this is something that particularly interests you uh, Dawkins asserts that there's uh, this uh, absence of of extra-biblical evidence for the truth claim. As I say, the Bible in itself should be taken as evidence. You don't need to have extra-biblical evidence. You don't need to have uh, additional sources uh, to take seriously the sources that you do have. Uh, but also, this is uh, an argument from silence. Of a, of a non-nuanced sort. And also it's a matter of ignorance because he'll say, look, you know, it, the Bible mentions King David, uh, but there's uh, a archaeological silence about King David and therefore he probably never existed or, or was a minor chieftain or whatever. Um, but he's actually also wrong about the fact that there is no extra biblical or archaeological evidence about King David. There, There is archaeological evidence for the existence of King David. Uh, this is just a well-known accepted fact uh, and Dawkins could have found it out with a little bit of uh, Google searching had he been bothered. Um, so it's not just an argument from silence, it's, it's an argument from ignorance as, as well. Uh, And then uh, he also uh, makes various claims, like the the claim about camels, about there being uh, evidence against the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories, which again, uh, unfortunately, displays uh, a lack of research and and, uh, ignorance on his part. Uh, I reference you back to our discussion of the uh, Bacterian camel uh, in the time of uh, Abraham and before. So what lessons might we sort of learn from this survey? Remember I started off with uh, that uh, quote from Lydia McGrew with that analogy of sampling bread at various points and it being edible. And the more you've sampled it, the more it would be, you know, being too skeptical to just say, well, probably the bits that I haven't tasted, they're the moldy bits. You're you're just showing, that you're just determined to consider it, it no good. Uh, despite the evidence uh, pointing in the other direction, so we can't uh, independently test everything. Uh, and the further ago in history we're talking about, the harder it becomes to independently test things. Uh, but we can show that we can, where we can independently test what the Bible is claiming in those historical books, uh, we seem to have evidence that points towards its plausibility at least it's it's getting the cultural background right uh, lots of arguments that that seem to indicate that the idea that these texts were written uh late on in history in, in a foreign culture from the cultures they're talking about uh, is very implausible because they get those cultural details correct and uh, the further through the history we work the more and more we start getting um, being able to pin down the existence of particular people, like the existence of David, the existence of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Hezekiah, of I- Jeremiah's scribe, of particular servants, of particular kings uh, mentioned in the Bible, and um, uh, particular servants mentioned in the Bible, particular places, particular battles, and on and on it goes. So we've shown that there are scholars who take the Bible seriously uh, for scholarly reasons. And we can do that in our in our preaching and our teaching, as well as on our, our sort of evangelism and apologetic conversations. Uh, in all of those contexts, we can show that scholars do take the Bible seriously. We can quote the occasional scholar uh, in our sermons when we're referencing something that that is relevant. Uh, we can address people's worldview based assumptions and questions Uh, this I'm particularly thinking of the whole sort of are miracles possible are miracles knowable kind of claim Uh, and again if you want to pursue that I'd I'd really reference you to my discussion uh, the chapter in my book uh, getting at Jesus which talks about miracles and the knowability of miracles and the uh, permissibility of talking about miracles and the evidence for miracles in the discipline of, of history Uh, We can and should, I think, try to teach people critical thinking skills and to unmask fallacies in opponents of the Bible. Um, Just as I have today, it doesn't take much to teach people about, say, um, arguments from silence and when they can be used and when They can't be used uh, when they're more or less strong as an argument. To talk about the criteria of embarrassment and how biblical text passes that criteria. Uh, To talk about, um, you know, it is good to have independent sources. And look, here we have independent sources uh, showing that the Bible's right. And if you show that a, a source is right on lots of occasions, Lydia McGrew again. Uh, you come to trust it on even the things that you can't uh, uh, directly test and so on. So we can teach critical thinking skills, unmask fallacies, um, and we can reference uh, without relying upon that extra biblical evidence when it's available, I think it's really nice to be able to, to show you some of these pictures of things from the British Museum. Um, uh, archaeological finds that are dug up uh, in jerusalem and so on when you're talking about a bible story in, in a bible study or in a sermon or something uh put up uh, a picture of the archaeologist with the discovery of uh, you know here's king david's palace here's solomon's uh mines um here is uh a picture of a man wrestling a lion from from the town and the era that that, that Samson came from isn't that interesting, uh, and so on. It really, um, as with back to that uh, goat statue uh, from Ur, really kind of brings alive the past. Uh, shows you know these were were real people in their, in real historical situations in their own culture uh, and uh, modern uh, uh, scientific. Uh, And historical studies help us to appreciate more and more uh, the cultural background to the Bible, the meaning of the Bible, and uh, the reliability in historical terms of the historical stories in the Bible. Uh, Let me put up that last slide there again. So you've got my uh, uh, website where you'll find uh, lots of uh, YouTube playlists I create. Uh, and uh, my podcast which is available for free Uh, you'll be able to track down talks on biblical prophecy and history and New Testament history and things as well and contact uh, details and I'm going to come out of this and look at the the Q&A chat box again Um, yeah Uh, okay how promising is Finkelstein and his views that Finkelstein is a representative of of the minimalists um I'm not really in a in a position to to count heads on this one. Uh, I do know that there are these two of two uh, warring camps within uh, the discipline, the the minimalists and the maximalists that they've talked about. And unfortunately, a lot of this gets tied up with politics as well, because um, the politics of the Middle East, as, as you no doubt know, now, uh, now is is uh, so uh, fraught and convoluted, and people on on both sides tie up sort of political stances uh, with views on uh, ancient uh, Israel's history and so on uh, because of the whole Israel-Palestinian question Um, and people will uh, accuse others of taking certain stances because they want to support or denigrate certain political views whatever you think of the right and wrongs of those so sometimes it's uh, quite convoluted and uh you know, people just trading stuff backwards and forwards. But I, you know, I read the, uh, some of the, uh, like, biblical archaeological review and uh, read uh, books of archaeology. And I just want to kind of focus on what the data uh, is and how plausible the interpretations seem. Um, and it certainly seems that um, some of those quotes I said at the beginning, the more evidence that we have coming in, uh, continues to point away from a sort of minimalist view; and the evidence points more towards uh, what we would call a, a maximalist view. That doesn't necessarily uh, go all the way, as I say, to you know supporting every individual claim in the Bible, or or being an argument for um, biblical infallibility or anything. That sort of takes us into a theological uh, topic. But on purely kind of secular historical grounds, as it were. That seems to me, at least, to be the way that the the evidence points. Uh, We more and more dig up these particular bits of evidence that point to, say, the existence of particular people, major and very minor characters who are mentioned in the Biblical texts of Kings or Jeremiah or whatever, and then we dig up things that say that that person was a real person who existed in that place at that time. now that's not just a matter of uh some uh exilic babylonian exile a jewish writer happening to uh hit, hit potluck uh maybe once or twice but not repeatedly <laughs> you know or the same with getting uh, cultural details in the text correct or uh, the the use of loan words and things i think there's a there's a really a sort of avalanche of evidence from different types of historical evidence, different types of archaeological evidence uh, that jointly, in a sort of cumulative case, point towards the general reliability of the historical portions of the of the Old Testament. Let's have a scroll through here. Some of these I think I've already touched on or pointed to uh, sources. Um, yeah, talked about. We talked about some of the sort of science and the Exodus. And there's an interesting question here about the plagues. And I've seen a number of different discussions that people have published uh, about the the sequence of plagues, and to what extent there may be some scientific mechanisms uh, underlying those descriptions, um, but also. Uh, slightly sceptical as to what extent that can be done. Uh, when you read uh, the biblical text uh, descriptions uh, of the plagues, uh, quite how closely those two match. Um, but there's certainly no sort of uh, agreed list of oh well, this is obviously the explanation of them. But there are there are, scientists have put forward a number of, of explanations. And as uh, Colin Humphreys, who's a Christian, does in, in his book. Um, of the Miracles of the Exodus, which would be a great place to, to start on this issue, um, to see how plausible you find his descriptions. And I find some more plausible than others, um, but certainly an interesting source to go to. But as he says, um, even if there is a scientific mechanism, uh, that doesn't exclude uh, divine uh, providence uh, out, uh, uh, from the event, because you have to have the uh, the events timing happening just at the right time in the right place um, to have the results that God wanted um, and sometimes the the Bible as as with the parting of the Red Sea explicitly mentions that there was a, a a natural if you like a physical force that was involved in the blowing of the wind but then you just step back a step and say well okay how come that wind was blowing at just the right strength in just the right direction at just the right time in just the right place uh for this miracle uh to happen uh. Peter I noticed two hands are off uh sure um do you want to um let's see uh, Agape and, I Agape like and Nigel a, a, a few hands do you want to um, we'll we'll take uh oh now someone's dropping because somebody's made a mistake. I had someone had a hand up later, but it was a mistake. Do you want to want to to allow um, uh, Nigel to to talk to us and and ask his question if he's got a a hand up? Sure. Here it is. Go ahead, Nigel. Now, okay. Can you hear me? I can indeed. Hello, can you... Nigel. Great. Right. Yes, my question, along with a few others, ended up somewhere other than. In the q box. Oh, I do know what's going on there. <laughs> it's got a right. I have emailed Infodesk at your organization to tell them anyway. Okay. Uh, my question related mm. to Michael Heiser's claim mm. that the large numbers of the Exodus were really unrealistic and completely impossible. Yeah. Have you got any resources for uh, an alternative view? Ah, for, well, uh, I was going to say. Um, Colin Humphrey's book on the miracles of Exodus has a has a chapter on the the numbers uh, in Exodus and in and how to interpret uh, those numbers which I think is very interesting um, and I think I'm I'm relatively persuaded that uh, the some of the literalistic translations of the numbers are very implausible uh, but are, are not uh, necessarily the best way to translate uh, the text there, and I think Colin Humphreys does a good job of his discussion of that in his book, um, *The Miracles of the Exodus*. So that that's where I would point you to for for a starting place on on that discussion. Okay. Any any alternative view that you would uh, be able to point me to as well? Um, I'm afraid not. I don't know of any. Um, I mean, the numbers are just so large. Um, as to be, if you take them in a, in a sort of woodenly literal manner, uh, as to be highly, highly implausible when you try and work through the uh, the ramifications of of them, uh, or to put them in in the cultural setting uh, of the time, um, and I think Humphrey's uh, discussion of that is good, and his uh, suggestions for how the text should be taken uh is quite plausible and i've seen a number of discussions that take uh similar discuss- discussion routes but um i can't think off the top of my head of uh what might be the best commentaries uh that get into that issue but i but i would hope that uh some of the good standard um commentaries on the book of exodus would contain a discussion of that issue as well um see if I've got anything on the uh, reference notes that I gave that might mention this as well. Uh, I got it's uh, quite a good commentary on Exodus in I um, don't know if I can remember the name of the, the commentator, but it's in the series of uh, the recent series of Wesleyan commentaries on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look up on Amazon on, on uh, Exodus Wesleyan oh. commentary okay. um, uh, yeah, uh, H. Juna Poc- Pocrypha Exodus a commentary in the Wesleyan tradition yeah. uh, from 2018 published by Beacon Hill it's on the uh, intermediate books in the handout that goes along with this talk um, so that's also uh, I think a good commentary on Exodus um that that probably contains some discussion of that I think. Thank you. Okay, no, no worries. Yeah. Okay. Nigel. Go ahead and ask. Nigel, are you there? Yes I am. Uh but I've already asked yeah, the question. That that, that was Nigel. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> that's right. I think <laughs> uh, I think there we've we got go. uh, D- Diana. Has her hand up? I've unmuted her. Yeah. So if we can un- unmute Diana. She can. See, so can I can I unmute her? No, I think you, I think Al has to unmute Diana because he's in charge of all the uh, the workings of this. Could that be un- unmuted for Diana? It's still showing us muted on, on my panel, unfortunately. Um, Let's see. I'll try to promote her to panelists for a moment. Yeah, okay, let's try that. We're, we're trying to get through to you, Diana. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do not have a question. Move on. Oh, that's all right. No worries. <laughs> I'm sorry, No worries. I'm sorry, Doctor Andrews. <laughs> <Right here. laughs> right it, it's, it's very easy just to just to click the wrong thing, isn't it? Here, so, so I, I had the chat up but not the Q and A panel. I didn't realize the difference. We live and learn. Still scrolling through questions here to see if there's, if there's anything that I can usefully address. Yeah, the the question here about the conquest period under under Joshua. Um, again, this is one of those periods of of biblical archaeology that's that's quite quite controversial. Uh, partly because it ties in with the controversy over the dating of the exodus as to when you think uh, the conquest happened and therefore what period of history you're looking at to see whether there is or isn't evidence Uh, and there's been quite a lot of controversy over the interpretation of um, evidence of the digs at uh, Jericho for example um whether that ties in the the archaeology that we have of ancient Jericho ties in with the biblical story or if it's at the wrong time period and the material that would be at the right time period um, is just doesn't exist anymore um, because it it, it just hasn't survived because it's more recent than the the earlier stuff uh, and so there's nothing there to see whether it does or doesn't uh, tie in uh, for example so sometimes um, these disputes about dating have knock-on effects uh, as to why, where you're looking, and then you know the randomness of what does manage to survive also has an effect on whether whether there's anything there that you would expect to find to to tie in. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes, the Tel Dan inscription on King David uh, is uh, dated to 841 BC. That's that's not that's BC, not AD. Yeah, uh, Joshua saying Dawkins is so popular that young people accept his claims without question, and treat valid evidence with skepticism. Yeah, I think he, he comes with an aura of sort of authority with him because of his uh, position uh, at Oxford University and the fact that he is, you know, a scientist. Uh, that people tend to uh, tend to give him the benefit of the doubt and take him at his word, where, whereas if you do a little research and look into what he's actually claiming, you find very soon that that falls apart and you discover that you basically shouldn't trust him as far as you could throw him when he's talking on these subjects because he hasn't bothered to do any research. Um, Can a book be uh, written by a Christian archaeologist community that's meant to reach a wide audience with all of this evidence? Well I I guess some have tried to and I've I've listed some of them in the in the resource list that I'm doing. Um, I myself have just handed in a manuscript uh, of a book uh, that is a direct reply to um, Dawkins' recent Outgrowing God book, uh, which will be uh, published with um, the Cascade imprint of Whipfenstock uh, in the coming year. Uh, and uh, my book, um, cashing in on his, as it were, uh simply called Outgrowing God? question uh, <laughs> mark. Outgrowing God? Uh, uh, subtitled uh, A Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate. And there I have a, um, I've written it, uh, as a, a dialogue between a group of students in a, in a student reading group uh, each of whom uh, represents a, a different position on the god debate you know uh, a sort of new atheist a classical atheist an agnostic a christian student uh, at this uh, university reading club and they happen to be reading uh, outgrowing god by dawkins and going through it and uh, talking about the issues that he raises and uh, pointing out some of the uh, the facts that he gets wrong (laughs) as they go through so i hope that'll that'll be out next year and i hope we'll we'll reach some of the, the people who've been influenced by by that book uh yeah still looking through questions here yeah, Roger Marshall, interesting notes. You said that hyperbole was a common trait of Mesopotamian literature. Could that not be true of some biblical stories? Uh, indeed, I think I think it is. Uh, I think it's clear talking about the the conquest accounts or in Joshua and so on. There clearly is hyperbole used in the biblical stories, just as in that 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 account we had from the Egyptian guy saying, you know, Israel's seed is no more. I've completely destroyed Israel. When he hadn't, uh, what that just meant in in the 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 way of speaking in that in that kind of propaganda of the day was, you no, know, I want a resounding victory. It would be like us saying, you know, my football team completely slaughtered. The other team the other night in the match. And, um, you know, if someone were to uh, overhear that and not understand the context, uh, they think, you know, how barbaric (laughs) a football team you you must have to have slaughtered the other team. Uh, But you mean that they won a comprehensive, resounding victory. Um, And just as we find that in the literature all around the region and we see in the biblical stories uh, of the conquests where they they talk about you know we, we just killed everyone we completely slaughtered them uh, and then like in the very next verse sometimes it'll talk about uh, and then uh, the survivors went off to another city or and this is what we did with the captives or um think, hang on a minute you've just said you you absolutely killed everybody and and then in the next breath the same author is talking about the survivors or those that Israel didn't kill and so on Uh, and so it cannot have meant the earlier statement in a literalistic manner Uh, so that's right we need to be uh, attentive to um, these forms of expression such as hyperbole uh, in, in the biblical writings uh, and ask ourselves when when a statement should be taken straightforwardly and when it should be taken metaphorically or uh, as as hyperbole and so on, and look for the the contextual clues. So if the same author is saying, you know, Joshua and his army killed everybody, and then this is what happened to the survivors. you think, okay, contextually that shows us that the first statement wasn't meant to be taken literally because you give the author the benefit of the doubt of not intentionally just contradicting themselves Uh. (laughs) Uh, Again, on on, uh, some of the Questions about uh, the dating of the and the the writing and the fact that you know earlier sources are drawn upon in the Old Testament and sometimes are edited together and things like you know Moses. Some people think he did, but probably didn't write about his own death. Some people would say. And uh, there's some material in the in the handout again that relates to uh, those questions, particularly Tremper Longman's essay about uh uh moses uh and who wrote genesis and also um i think it's daryl bock has uh an essay on yeah daryl bock uh recovering the voice of moses uh the genesis of deuteronomy uh from the journal of the evangelical theological society um if you follow that link and go to daryl Bock's uh essay it's an interesting essay on Uh, Deuteronomy and the extent to which uh, it goes back to Moses and uh, the extent to which it is uh, edited uh, later Uh, so that's a a good source to go to on that kind of a question Um, again dating questions obviously dating questions arise particularly when you're looking at, at prophecies um, I think the particularly interesting thing about the Tyre prophecy is you, you, to say that it was written after the event, you'd have to say that it was written after the time of Alexander the Great. Uh, you'd have to uh, put the time there, not simply you know, during the Babylonian exile or something like that. Um, so that, that really would be uh, having to put it quite late to put it, but again, I, I refer you to... Um, that dating the Old Testament uh, material uh, in the in the handout to start pursuing those kind of questions uh. do, do, do. Uh, yeah, uh, again, on, on some of the more um, detailed questions about the historicity of of the detail of the book of Daniel, beyond simply saying there's a historical core here that we can share, I'd point you to um, the books by John Lennox and Josh McDowell that are listed on the on the handout. uh will go into a lot of those issues about the, the language and uh, the theories about the dating of the book and so on. Do uh, 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 i of crossing the ring. We've talked about that. Uh, I've that I'm not taking any of this from any particular book and I'm afraid I've not written a particular uh, material on this, I've published stuff on New Testament archaeology, but not on Old Testament archaeology particularly. As 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 yet, yeah, although I've done a few talks, at ELF on fulfilled prophecy in the Bible that talks about uh, some of this uh, material about Jerusalem and Tyre that I've covered here uh, as well. Uh, but I'm drawing from uh, sources such as those listed in the in the handout and elsewhere. Uh, So uh, I I hope that I've given you a a useful introduction. Uh, We've only been able to sort of skim the surface of the material that's available and some of the uh, discussions and debates that are uh, uh, in this area. And I I pointed out at the beginning some of the complexities uh, of the area. Uh, We can't expect this to be just simple and straightforward, uh, much as we would sometimes like it to be. Uh, but I do think uh, that we can have uh, a growing sense of confidence from the extra-biblical data that is being amassed uh, by archaeologists and historians uh, that point to at least a historical core to the stories that are in the historical sections of the Old Testament uh, and that mitigate, uh, point against the idea that these are simply sort of made up fairy tales Uh, written um, in the time of the Babylonian exile or later that the the material that we have in the Bible goes back to uh, early sources that were in contact with the cultures that they're talking about know know what they're talking about in the little offhand details as well as in um, things like the specific names of, of people even minor characters sometimes as we get later on we get the evidence for uh, and that this should give us a general confidence um, that uh, our opinion of the Old Testament, purely on secular grounds, should be somewhere in the the so-called maximalist camp range, rather than the minimalist camp. Uh, and probably uh, our ultimate opinion of the of the fine grain detail or, or the detail of the Old Testament, where we don't uh, have access to independent evidence is going to come down to um, theological questions as well about our opinion of um, the old and new testaments as revelation uh, the the way that Jesus and the apostles treated the old testament and so on and that gets us into uh, a whole other uh, territory of discussion uh, than we're um, signed up to discuss here today um, but thank you, thank you for participating, thank you for your questions, uh, I hope that's been of use, and uh, do uh, get in contact through the ELF app, etc, if there's a further follow-on that I can be helpful with.